Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I'm Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime by making a brand spanking new podcast. It is hot off the presses. It's still got that new podcast smell. That's right, folks. It's Japanimation Station. It's here. Uh, the debut episode, the premiere of our new anime podcast, something that we have been working on either for like a couple of months or all our lives, depending on how you think about it. <laughs> Indeed. I think, I think all our lives. I think, uh, in, uh, to quote Morpheus from The Matrix Reloaded, all our lives have led us to this. Indeed. So this is our premiere episode, our number one episode of the podcast. Um, I'm going to assume that probably most people listening to this will be coming over from the Weekly Stuff or Weekly Suit Gundam, but this episode is also designed for if you have never heard a podcast with me and Jonathan on it, that this is a true intro. So we'll be talking about what the podcast is, who we are, and like our history with anime. Kind of why did we get to this point? What is our history with anime? Um, we'll talk about kind of our perspectives on anime and what interests us about it and kind of our philosophical perspective on it, as well as giving some a broad slice of what our interests are with anime with five desert island anime. So it's going to be a jam-packed first episode kind of going over what this podcast is about and what we're interested in with anime. Indeed. And of course, we will be um, starting our first series that we are reviewing next week when we begin our run through the Full Metal Alchemist animes, first with the O3 anime uh, that deviates from the manga before we move over to Brotherhood. Um, so that is coming next week. Today, as Sean just said, is a more general introduction, and I am excited to tell you guys about ourselves and our thoughts on anime. Exactly. So, Jonathan, who the heck are you? Who the heck am I? Well, my name is Jonathan Lack. Uh, I am 29, turning 30 in October, and I'm not happy about that. Uh, <laughs> I am a PhD candidate at the University of Iowa. I am getting my doctorate in uh, cinematic arts, is what they call it there. Sometimes it's called film studies. I study Japanese cinema and animation. Um, I study a lot of things, but those are two things I write about a lot. I also write about video games and some other stuff. Uh, but my undergraduate thesis uh, at the University of Colorado was on Hayao Miyazaki and three films by him that sort of deal with um, meta-textual themes of creativity in his work. 
My master's thesis, also at the University of Colorado, was on Isao Takahata, kind of a sister piece because they are obviously partners who, who worked a long time together uh, up to and including creating Studio Ghibli. Uh, and, and that was the sadder of the two because that was the one about Isao Takahata and mm-hmm. loss in his work and death and sad things. Um, and you can actually find both of those online if you're interested. I can send out links to both of those. But those were my major academic works coming into my PhD program. I am currently working on my dissertation, which is tentatively still working on it. I say still working, started working on it this year. So it's very still, I've written some of it. Um, And it is about digital technology and anime in the 21st century and how anime has changed both formally and then a little bit also on the side of fandom and reception and distribution and things like that. So this is something I think about a lot been podcasting with sean for a long time that's the other major thing to know about me is i do a lot of podcasts uh and yeah and my dog phoebe is my other podcasting partner she's behind me right now sleeping on my bed um you probably won't hear her if you do hear her something has probably gone wrong um but she just likes to sleep while we podcast so there you go very very good yes so you you're you're on your way to becoming the anime professor uh, yes is the 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 condensed <laughs> version of that the anime um, professor that's that's i i hope if i ever live to have like a memoir or something that's what i get to call it exactly um so then for me i'm sean chapman uh i am english teacher high school english teacher by day anime nerd by night i guess would be the <laughs> one way to describe it it's um, the most exciting yeah. marvel comic book ever <laughs> exactly yes it's like oh he did during the day, he teaches you, you know, conventional plot structures in in ancient Greek myth, and then at night, he watches Kaguya-sama wa Kokurase Tai. It's like the most exciting <laughs> story uh, possible. Um, but yeah, so so uh, I got my uh, bachelor's degree in English literature study from CU Boulder, where, where Jonathan also went, um, and then after that, I entered a English teacher licensure program and then started teaching. Uh, high school English in Colorado, then later moved to Texas, and I'm starting my first English teacher uh, job in Texas in two weeks uh, is when I'll have students uh, for the first time in Texas. But So right now I've got both, we're doing anime podcasts and like, oh God, oh God, I'm going to have to talk to 5,000 little 14-year-olds uh, in a little bit here. But yeah, so that's kind of my side of like the my more academic life is it's very English literature focused. Um, and looking at that kind of stuff. But I also am like functionally fluent in Japanese. So when I was at Boulder, I started studying Japanese. Um, and, you know, I've been an anime fan forever. And we'll go over kind of like our history with anime as part of the topic for this episode. Um, but at Boulder, I started studying Japanese and have kept with it since then. And I regular read things in Japanese. So I read manga in Japanese like Full Metal Alchemist, which we'll cover Next week, I read that manga fully in Japanese. I started reading light novels in Japanese. Obviously, I can watch and consume video content in Japanese without subtitles as well. Um, and yeah, and then I just, I watch a lot. I wa- I've watched a lot of anime. I've watched a lot. <laughs> like, you have. That will, be, that will become apparent in the history uh, section. But yeah, so I think that's kind of like our background. And I think that's a good segue into kind of what this podcast is. And I think maybe what hopefully we'll kind of distinguish it from other anime-focused uh, online content, um, which is both of us come from academic backgrounds or and, and are in academia in obviously different spheres. Jonathan's in higher education. I'm in high school education. Um, but our approach to things is in from that perspective and that framework and that lens. 
Um, and so that's sort of like the objective of this podcast and what the structure will be um, is taking large scale topics of uh, things. So like Full Metal Alchemist is actually going to be a very small scale thing relative to our normal topics. Um, but another one we're going to do after Full Metal Alchemist is going to be uh, the Fate Stay Night series, but more generally the UFO Table type moon adaptations, which would include the Garden of Sinners movies and the Fate Stay Night TV anime stuff and the Fate Stay Night movies. Um, and that's a better example of like, that's a bigger topic that is looking at like kind of a chronological slice of um, that studio UFO Table's work. Um, and going through it in a chronological order and sort of putting it in a historical context as we analyze it, um, hopefully with like kind of our academic chops and our sort of media analysis stuff that we do while also having fun, right? So it's, it's not just like a, a egghead podcast, but joking around, having fun with it, but also keeping it grounded in that more kind of academic uh, analytical framework is part of our objective and so that's why we're doing it as these kind of big topics almost like season style topics of going through and really going in depth with maybe like a certain studio's output or a pick a director or a writer and just really kind of going in in the nitty-gritty details and breaking it down and covering that stuff in a long-form podcast format. Yes. And when you say academic, I want to be clear. I'm not, I promise, we're not going to be doing like Deleuzian analysis no. of Dragon no. Ball Z. I'm not going to do, I don't like that to begin with. Uh, more just meaning very informed and hopefully intelligently analytical. Um, but, you know, it's not just an academic side. You and I have done various media criticism all our lives. Um, for yes. people who don't know me, the other thing to know about me is I started reviewing movies when I was 10 years old. I worked with a kid section of the Denver Post, which uh, was the big paper in the in Denver when we were growing up. Um, I guess it still technically exists, but as a husk of itself. Um, and I had uh, a blog and lots of other things, and I wrote movie reviews every day for a long time and, and wrote about a lot of stuff. So, so I've always kind of had a media criticism hat that generally, or uh, over time... Uh, kind of morphed into the podcast that Sean and I do together. Should we tell them a little bit about the podcast history? Yes. Yeah, so how long have we been doing podcasts, Jonathan? Ten, well, over 10 years. Our yes. main show, the Weekly Stuff Podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts, celebrated its 10th anniversary this year, 2022. We started that June 2012. We did a big 10th anniversary episode earlier this year. When I say big, it was 11 hours long. Uh, so very big 10th anniversary episode. Um, but we f fiddled around with other podcasts before then. And you and I have known each other since we were 14, when we were in eighth grade. Yeah. Um, and we became friends then and honestly just enjoyed talking about a lot of this kind of stuff. And that gradually turned into let's record these conversations. And that turned into the podcast, which has gotten better over time. And that's how we got into podcasting. Yeah, so we have been doing podcasts forever. I mean, we've been doing podcasts since like late high school, like senior year high school. Probably that was like when we started doing the weekly 10, which I don't know yes. if any of that stuff exists online or the monthly Oh no, I, I actually um, went through and scrubbed it a couple months ago yes. because I realized yeah. there were some places I hadn't scrubbed it yet. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, the monthly 10. We, Sean, we, here, I'll put it in perspective for everyone listening. We've been doing podcasts since podcasts were listened to on iPods. It's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We said it's like before either of us had an iPhone. <laughs> yes. When we did start doing podcast stuff. Yeah. So we've been at the podcasting game for a long time, but the specific precursor to Japan Animation Station isn't weekly stuff. It is another podcast we did called Weekly Suit Gundam, which again, I think is probably the thing that people are jumping here from because effectively 
Weekly Suit Gundam has transformed into Japanimation Station. So if you're a Japanimation Station listener and you're starting with this podcast and have not heard Weekly Suit Gundam, chances are very good that you will be interested in those podcasts. Because effectively what Weekly Suit Gundam was, was uh, I had, after graduating Boulder, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't get into the teacher program right away. And so I had a lot of free time while I was trying to figure shit out. And I just watched all of Gundam. I just watched the whole franchise in maybe like eight to nine months uh, and got super deep into it and then desperately needed to talk to somebody about Gundam because it's, it's very good and it's very interesting. And I knew nobody. So I figured, well, if I can't find somebody, I can create somebody. So I planted seeds dutifully over time that eventually blossomed into um, us doing the Weekly Suit Gundam podcast, which just started its life as us breaking down the original Mobile Suit Gundam TV anime um, in five podcast episode chunks. Uh, and, and it was just going to be that kind of like a little project just to test it out and to see if Jonathan liked it. Luckily, Jonathan liked Gundam immediately, got bit by the bug, and then uh, went on a crazy Gundam spree. And so we that podcast rapidly transformed into not just, let's do a little miniseries, and instead it became ultimately a three-year-long project where we covered all of the major TV shows, movies, and OVAs in the Gundam franchise. Uh, and after three years, we, we caught up and we looked at, we were at the end of that road and we're like, well, what the fuck do we do? And I said, let's do an anime podcast. Indeed. Yeah. Weekly Suit Gundam started as a little summer miniseries. And then it turned into uh, what we called a bonus podcast. And then at the point <laughs> yes. where it had 60 episodes, I don't think it was a bonus podcast anymore. Weekly Suit Gundam actually outgrew the original podcast in terms of listeners and all of that sort of stuff. So we're very fond of Weekly Suit Gundam. And Weekly Suit Gundam is like a super long version of what we're doing each season on Japanimation Station, right? Yes. I, I don't... Yeah, yeah, our topics on Japanimation Station are not going to be as big as that because I don't want to spend three whole years on <laughs> one topic for the nature of what this podcast is. Yes, so we're, yeah. I, and I, honestly, it would be hard to know what else would be that big. Yeah. Because even, like, there's other long-running things, but they wouldn't require as many episodes to break down because Gundam mm -hmm. is long-running across a bunch of smaller series. So, anyway, we loved Weekly Suit Gundam. We loved talking about anime. We had lots of things we wanted to talk about, some of which were Gundam-shaped, some of which weren't. And so, Japanimation Station, there you go. Yeah, like if I were to identify the seed at which, because um, originally, the, I guess the idea was um, to, to do the Tomino podcast topic, which is going to be one of the first big topics we'll do on Japanimation Station, is covering the non-Gundam works by Yoshiki Tomino, who's the creator and main director for the Gundam franchise, who also did a lot of non-Gundam stuff that is also fantastic, some of which I've watched. Um, that was kind of part of the original idea. But for me, when we did the Kimetsu no Yaiba or Demon Slayer episodes, like that ignited something in me of like, oh, these are this those episodes were so much fun to record because we took our kind of weekly suit Gundam style and applied it to such a different kind of show, you know, a big battle shonen thing, um, and had so much fun doing that. Um, that I was like, we should, I need, we need to eventually this will have to be an anime podcast. So then I also started at that point, planting my little seeds to be like, eventually I'm going to make sure that this becomes an anime podcast. So I did things like read the Full Metal Alchemist manga, knowing eventually, hey, this will be a good way to get Jonathan to make sure. I, I thought that it would obviously Jonathan would be receptive to doing the anime podcast, but like, but if it means that we'll do a Full Metal Alchemist episode, we're 100% guaranteed he'll, he'll be in on that idea. 
Yes, that's one of the anime I had seen and Sean hasn't, which is actually somewhat rare at this point. Yeah. So, yes, uh, that's part of the excitement of getting started with that. Yeah, so I think that covers most of our, our general intro kind of stuff. Um, again, for people who are listening and want to make sure you're keeping up, uh, the first full like topic-based episode of Japanimation Station next week will be the original 2003-2004 Full Metal Alchemist. So if you want to watch along with us and keep up with that, that's what um, that topic's going to be. Um, but with, I think, that kind of tease of Jonathan was way into Full Metal Alchemist and watched it back in the day, but I didn't. I think that's a good segue into one of our first major topics for today's episode, which is our history with anime. Um, about, like, how did we kind of get started? How did we find our way into the world of anime? And how did our relationship with anime change over the years? Because one thing I've always found very interesting is that even though we've been friends for forever, um, and we're, you know, we're the same age, and we both grew up during the late 90s, early 2000s anime boom in America... I feel like our relationship with anime is like started in very, very different places. And I've always found it very interesting. It really did. I mean, so should I go first and just say some yeah. of my backstory? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny when you talk about being a kid in the 90s, because my initial exposures to anime would be things I didn't know were anime, right? Uh -huh. Because, you know, weren't online. I'm just watching TV. It's all on Kids WB or Cartoon Network or Toonami, you know, anything like that. And it's all just shows, and it's not necessary. And especially, I mean, in the '90s, a lot of anime specifically disguised itself and tried to hide its Japaneseness. Yeah, which is very funny when you look at it versus today, where like the Japaneseness is a point of pride. I mean, the major streaming service in the U.S. is called Crunchyroll. Like, it's trying mm -hmm. to indicate some kind of like Japaneseness there, um, but that's not you know what it was back in the day. I think the first anime. I got into was probably just the Pokemon show that was on Kids WB and everybody, everybody watched Pokemon back then. You yeah. know, it was ubiquitous. The games were huge. Pokemon was huge. It was on every day when I got home from school and I remember being, it was, it was a 4 p.m. syndicated spot and I would always get home and I would watch the episode of Pokemon religiously i would tape it if i for the kids out there that meant you would put a vhs tape in your player and you would record it to it would record the episode onto the vhs tape and then you would watch it later and if you don't know what a vhs tape is just google it um they were weird uh but anyway yeah, yeah. so pokemon was probably the first thing but i don't think i consciously knew pokemon was this thing from japan i mean because Pokemon really disguised itself. It changed all the names to be less culturally specific. He's Satoshi in Japanese, and he's Ash Ketchum in English, which is not necessarily an English name, but it's a not Japanese name. Yeah. I, I always remember in Pokemon that when Brock would make them rice balls or onigiri, they would call them jelly donuts without changing the animation, right. which is one of the funniest fucking things. Uh, another anime I got obsessed with when I was very young was Yu-Gi-Oh! When it was first airing on... That was also a Kids WB show. I think I watched less Toonami than I did some of the Kids WB stuff. Uh, but I watched... I was super big into Yu-Gi-Oh! And I do specifically remember being online as a kid, which like, you know, back then was not something you did all the time. It was like specific maybe times of the day or week you would use the internet. And learning about Yu-Gi-Oh!'s Japanese origins and then being really shocked... Not necessarily that it was Japanese, but that it was so different. Because that's when I first learned... Because Yu-Gi-Oh! is a very edited anime in the U.S. Yeah. 
um, and I learned about all these differences in the original anime, and I was fascinated. And I like you mean Joey Wheeler's not Joey Wheeler, and he's not from Brooklyn, and he's <laughs> yeah. Junochi. What the hell is this? And it would be like the Shadow Realm isn't a thing. Oh, those chainsaws weren't blue glowing discs; they were actual yeah. chainsaws going to cut Yugi's legs off. It was that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, then that is something that led me down the path of like bootlegging dvds on ebay to try to see the original versions because it was hard to torrent stuff back then and that's kind of how your access would be so that's kind of one trajectory uh but honestly in terms of getting into something anime related as anime as a japanese thing it was manga for me um manga was more my entree into the world of anime than anime itself which i think is weird for a lot of westerners but i guess i just was born at the right moment and was interested in the right things that viz the company in the u.s that publishes a lot of manga i say a lot they publish the most manga of anyone in the u.s now um but they had really started getting into that game and they started a monthly print magazine in the u.s called shonen jump based on Weekly Shonen Jump, which is the major manga magazine. I say the. It's the biggest manga magazine in Japan, but there's many manga magazines. Um, And it would publish, you know, manga from Weekly Jump. At that point, they were not doing anything like simulcast or anything. It was older. They had Dragon Ball. They had One Piece. They had Naruto. Some of it was ongoing, but they were obviously very far behind. And I really got into that because of Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu-Gi-Oh! was the thing that, like, when I learned that Yu-Gi-Oh! was different in Japanese, I learned about the manga, and then Monthly Jump had just started, and I got into it that way. Uh, And I got, I had a subscription to that, my parents got me, and I got Monthly Jump every month, and I read all the, the, you know, because you had one month with the issue, and you had nothing else, so I would read all the manga over and over again, and I got really into it. That is actually how I got into Dragon Ball. I have... Never in my life met another person who had this direction into Dragon Ball, in the U.S. at least, um, that I did not watch the anime on Toonami. I wasn't interested in it for whatever reason. But I did start reading it during the Cell Games arc when it was in Monthly Jump, and I got hooked on it. Just mid in the story. It was just I had no context for anything. I didn't know, like, Piccolo's backstory as Goku's enemy or as an old guy that Goku flew through the chest of. Anything like that, you know? And I just got into it in that part, and I read the manga, really loved it, eventually did start watching the anime. Dragon Ball got me into watching anime in Japanese because I had a couple of the volumes on DVD that had both the English voice track, which is what I would have listened to first, but then I would have that volume for a lot, and I only had those four episodes, so I would watch it over and over, and I would just switch it over to Japanese, and I realized how much I loved that voice cast, and that got me interested in watching more things in Japanese. So that is another trajectory, is all of the manga I read. And, and there were all sorts. I mean, there was Yu-Gi-Oh!, there was Dragon Ball. I would have read some, like... Um, God, I, I remember all the ones that were in Jump back in the day, like Hikaru no Go. I would have read yeah, Naruto. Like, Hikaru no Go. Naruto I was thinking piece. about the other day, there was... Do you remember Beat the Vandal Buster? Beat the Vandal Buster? Uh, Shaman King was big at the moment back then. Yeah. Um, and it's come back again. They, they, they've done a new Shaman King adaptation. I know, it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, because the original anime was on like Cartoon Network at that point. Or mm-hmm. No, that was a Kids to be with, because that was a four kids one. Anyway. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so you had that. So I was into all of those. And then I think the third trajectory for me into anime was the cinematic one, where 
I was introduced to Hayao Miyazaki probably a couple different ways because his work is fairly ubiquitous, but it really would for me have been around the time Spirited Away came out in the U.S. And I actually went to a press screening for Spirited Away. So I would have been one of the first people in the U.S. to see that movie in theaters. And it bounced off me completely. I did not get it. But it kind of stuck in my head. And mm -hmm. it was really when... And I saw a couple others of his and I started liking them. And then the one that hooked me was Howl's Moving Castle, which we got in 2005, and I reviewed for The Post, and uh, loved, 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 I still vividly, vividly remember being in the Esquire Theater in Denver, seeing Howl's Moving Castle for the first time, and falling in love, and then I, all these things are going to date me, they're going to date, you're going to have your turn in a second, Sean. Uh, yes. I remember going on Netflix, when Netflix was a DVD rental service, and checking uh -huh. out all the discs of Miyazaki's movies. And I remember like getting Mononoke Hime, Princess Mononoke, and watching that in an afternoon, and then immediately shipping it back so I could get, like, um, you know, Porco Rosso or something. I think the first Miyazaki I ever saw without knowing it was a Miyazaki was Kiki's Delivery Service, because I remember oh, when yeah. that came out on tape. It was actually a pretty popular tape in the U.S. Had a really good dub. Phil Hartman is in that. Um, and my mom got me that tape, and I remember loving it, but I didn't, I didn't know about directors yet. I was a little kid, right? So those are kind of all the trajectories that kind of commingled for me with anime, uh, and it's been a lifelong kind of off-and-on thing. I had, you know, my movies and my directors and my franchises I was into. I think in the last, you know, five, ten years, I've gotten more into anime as a broader thing. It's been easier to do that with Crunchyroll and everything, right? Um, yeah. And certainly doing this podcast has exposed me to a lot. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, as you can tell from when I was an undergrad 10 years ago, I was already working on projects with, you know, Miyazaki has been my favorite movie director basically since I discovered him. That's still basically true. He's one of the greats. So yeah, I, that is my long spiel, but you know, I am sitting where I record this podcast. This wall right in front of me has all my one piece posters. Uh, I have all the like wanted handbills for Luffy and Nami and everyone up here. I have Dragon Ball posters there. Out in the other room, I have a bunch of posters. I've got a manga shelf next to me with my Yu-Gi-Oh! Gundam manga. Death Note. Death Note was a big one for me. Death Note is one of the first anime I watched fan-subbed when it was uh, coming out. Mm -hmm. And so in my memory, Light swears a lot. Um, he doesn't. But in the fan-subs, he said fuck all the time. Yeah. Oh, oh the old fan-sub days. We'll talk about yeah. that later. <laughs> yeah, so... So, yeah, so... I, this is like the thing that I've just always been interested, fascinated with, Jonathan, is that because I do feel like you, I don't know anybody else who got into this world from that angle of like primarily like manga um, and then like then Ghibli, like kind of like at the same time, right? And those kind of two angles. Because for me, I feel like probably my entry point is a lot more sort of standard for people our age, which is like Toonami, Toonami, Toonami. Like that's, right. that's what it was for me, um, is for people who don't know. Toonami back in the day and, and it's and it has come back they've done multiple revivals and I think there's still whatever version of Toonami exists now is still around on Cartoon Network but back in the day you had Cartoon Network um which was brand new uh you know car the idea of having an entire channel that only showed animation was a novel concept um and and so Cartoon Network was a fairly brand new thing um, and then they started doing a late night, I mean, I say late night, late night if you're a little kid, right? Like after dinner, like seven o'clock kind of thing, um, scheduling block of basically it was all Japanese animation. I suspect like you, Jonathan, I didn't know at the time, I would, I don't think I would have been conscious of, oh, this is from the island nation of Japan and I know what that is and what that implies. 
Um, I don't know at what point I discovered some of that kind of stuff. Um, but like, I think slowly you started to realize, oh, like Dragon Ball is a thing that has actually been out forever. Um, and there's all this, there's a GT and that kind of stuff. That's probably around the time I started to realize, oh, this is like foreign and, and this is kind of from a different place. Um, but yeah, but Toonami was a thing that aired at like seven o'clock ish on, uh, on weekdays and stuff. And then you had this whole programming block that had a framework where you had Tom, the robot, who was a little robot that flew around in space with a cool AI lady, <laughs> um, and did and cut together sick anime promos with Optimus Prime, uh, the Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus Prime did all the cool anime promos and you, they gave you anime. Um, and so I watched like everything that was on Toonami forever. Um, but the big, big thing for me was Dragon Ball. Like, that's what I was obsessed with. That was what everyone was obsessed with my age range, particularly if you were a boy. Like, everyone was into Dragon Ball. If you were in the playground, you were shooting Kamehameha's and pretending to go Super Saiyan um, and all that kind of stuff. Like, I remember so vividly going to art class because it was I was in elementary school, so art class was a mandatory thing. I am not an art visual arts kind of person, um, so, like, I didn't care much about art class, but going into art class after the Trunks episode aired and being like, oh, my God, dude, there's another Super Saiyan. Like, holy shit. I don't think I did <laughs> use the word shit at the time because I would have been, like, eight or something. But in whatever, like, elementary school terms, like, holy shit. And, and I, like, tried, and, like, we were, like, trying to draw Trunks and be like, he has these Super Saiyan hair. It's, like, so different. And he did a weird, he did, like, gang signs and shot Frieza. And then he got a sword. He killed Frieza's dad. It was fucking crazy. Um, and I, like, remember so vividly that being the thing. It was, like, water cooler TV or whatever if you were an elementary school boy in the late 90s and early 2000s. But I also watched, like, everything else. You know, they had, like, um, Samurai Troopers. They had Yu Yu Hakusho. They had Sailor Moon. Um, I, I watched some Gundam Wing. I never really got into Gundam Wing. I watched some G Gundam. Um, but I at least, like, touched everything, including eventually they started putting in non-anime stuff, but was, like, anime adjacent or anime inspired like samurai jack and megas xlr um but yeah i watched all that kind of stuff obsessively as a kid um and was super super into it and and slowly i do think part of where my sort of consciousness of oh this is from another country this is like culturally different started to come around with like getting exposed on the internet to the existence of dragon ball gt the concept that there was a super saiyan 4 um, all that kind of stuff. Like, I remember the first time I d learned what, like, the whole second half of the Boo Saga was before it had aired over here was by playing the Game Boy Color game Legendary Super Warriors, which covered the entire scope of the Dragon Ball Z storyline. And that's how I learned how that story went, because that had not aired in English yet. Um, and going over to a friend's house and them having, like, an imported copy of, like, Dragon Ball GT Final Bout or whatever yep. that PS1 game is. That was one of All the ones that, that introduced of a lot of people to GT because it got out yeah. here before GT came to America officially. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you just saw this. This is like, why is there little kid Goku is here and he can go Super Saiyan? Like, it's it's just... <laughs> And, and all the weird different kind of fusions and then also weird like fan mods online for different stuff where, you know, fan created characters. Um, so Dragon Ball was like my big obsession as a kid. And I did also watch a lot of that other like kind of WB kids and like four kids, that kind of stuff. You know, I saw some One Piece. I, I was very into Digimon. 
um, not realizing how butchered that version of Digimon is. If we ever do a Digimon adventure topic, which would be fun to do to cover that show, um, we will we'll have to at least watch the first episode with the English dub version just to see how wildly different um, it is in tone and style um, and how much you can change a show without like just making a like animating a brand new TV show. Um, and there was a lot of stuff like that at the time. I mean, you um, said you know, One I, Piece. That's that's one of the most famous ones, right? The four yes. kids One Piece with the pirate yes. rap and the hammer gun and all sorts of crazy things. And to this day, that is the only One Piece I have like seen like a full thing of. I, I've seen scenes of the Japanese One Piece, obviously. Sadly, um, but, I, th- I think One Piece would be significantly more popular in the West if it hadn't been for the four kids yeah. dub. I think that kind of retarded the growth of One Piece over here for a long time. It has bounced back since, but yeah. Yes, yeah, because because I did also I for a short period of time I also had the monthly Shonen Jump releases over here. I only think I ever got three or four of them. I didn't stick with it for a long time. I think partially because my and this is a very consistent thing with my personality. I do not like consuming things in bit like like bite sized chunks or whatever. Like I don't want to get like here's a chapter every once in a while. I just want give me like the full thing and I'll just dive into it. So like that model didn't work for me. So even though I read a lot of American comic books, I only did a little bit of manga back in the day, and I didn't get, like, super into that side. It's only, like, recently in the past five or six years after I've learned Japanese that I've gotten, like, a lot more into reading manga. Um, but, yeah, for me, it was it was that Toonami stuff all day, every day, um, and a little bit of the Adult Swim side of things, right? So you also had, after Toonami, you had the actual late-night programming block, which was Adult Swim, um, and that had sort of some of the more mature shows. So that's where I believe that's where Full Metal Alchemist originally aired. Because yes. it's a little bit more bloody uh, than certainly like the American edits of, of Dragon Ball. Um, that's where like Grody Kenshin on was. Um, that's where Cowboy Bebop was. That's where Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex was. So I did see bits and pieces of those shows. But I never, I never stayed up that late consistently. Because the only way I could see them was by sneaking downstairs in the middle of the night after everyone else was asleep. Um, and watching them because it was past my bedtime because I was a literal child um and so I did definitely see and we'll talk about this next week with Full Metal Alchemist like a couple of the episodes of Full Metal Alchemist and I saw some Ghost of the Shell standalone complex and it freaked me out and I didn't understand anything about it like what is this is weird and creepy um and and that side of it right Toonami and Adult Swim was the thing to me that like I think I consciously was aware of at a certain point very actively this is anime this is these are not this this isn't Ed, Ed and Eddie in Dexter's lab in SpongeBob SquarePants. It's like it's something very different. It's coming from a different place, even if it's being localized very heavily and edited and stuff. Um, you know, the Toonami version of things was nowhere near as sanitized as something like Four Kids, and so it was much more sort of exotic, effectively to to my experience. And I think that's a big part of what attracted me to it at that age, but. I ended up kind of, I think, growing out of it a lot. I, and, and I think it's like, honestly, it was around the time we became friends was around the time I stopped watching anime that much because that's also when the market receded. So I feel like my like relationship with anime like ebbed and flowed kind of with the like strength of the market in the West. Like when we were little kids, it was the most popular thing in the world because it was Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh and everything. I mean, Pokemon's like the most successful by in a monetary sense entertainment property in the entire world um so it's like it was unavoidable but then it receded a lot once you got into that kind of mid-2000 period and it wasn't until the streaming era that anime became really really big in the west again um 
but at the high school point like i i watched some miyazaki stuff like i i saw princess mononoke at a friend's birthday party and it gave me nightmares and i was fascinated with it um <laughs> i didn't like go into the deep end of watching every ghibli thing i could get my hands on i had seen like kiki's delivery service i'd seen my neighbor totoro i watched some of that stuff and i've watched obviously that stuff since then but as a kid i didn't get super into that side of it and in high school it was mostly just like re-watching dragon ball every once in a while that's when i watched death note because i remember borrowing one of your dvds of death note and starting with that and then being like well i gotta watch the rest of it and and getting weird fan subs online for that um and and, and that side of things but it wasn't until um graduating high school that i started to like really get into like the, my second phase or whatever with anime which is like kind of watching everything because all of a sudden everything became available. It was over the course of like freshman year of college where you have all this weird time in your day opens up. It's like the only point in your life in like a normal, like kind of average sort of life of, oh, you're, you know, you go to school and graduate high school, go to college and then you go into the workforce. Um, the only period where you have this like, here's a random one hour of the day in the middle of the afternoon that just like you have nothing to do. College is the only time that happens to you. So it's like I had all this weird, those weird pockets of free time opened up and I filled all those weird pockets of free time with anime. Um, and so I watched like Dragon Ball Kai um, because that had just finished airing. And so I was watching like all the English dubs because I typically didn't watch a lot of Japanese anime stuff. I would watch Japanese movies and obviously watch them in Japanese like Seven Samurai and stuff like that. But, I, but anime was something I usually watched still with the English dub because it's what I had grown up with and I, what I was used to. So I like I watched that. I rewatched Yu Hawk show. I rewatched Rurouni Kenshin. Um, I think it was when I started watching Bleach is where because I had never seen Bleach before, but it fit very neatly into my I like Shonen Battle stuff. Let me watch Bleach. And I hit a certain point where the English version of Bleach ran out. But there was like 200 something episodes of, of Japanese Bleach that was still out there. Um, and so I switched over and there was something about being able to watch the Japanese version without having like a nostalgic existing affection for the English dub like I did for Dragon Ball Yu Yu Show, where I had, you know, a decade plus of memories of association with those dubs that it was able for me. I was able to very clearly see, oh, no, this is way better. Like the Bleach dub is good. It is a good English dub, but the Japanese voice cast is a lot better. Uh, and so I got into Bleach, watched that. And then I became very ferocious and I watched like, that's when I watched Naruto. And so I started watching a lot of that kind of big stuff. And I think for me, the biggest turning point was when I watched a show uh, that is a very weird little show called Kore wa Zombie Desuka, or Is This a Zombie? Which is a completely off the ball, like off the walls, like crazy weird comedy show that's just fucking nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And I remember watching it and it was, you know, just a 24 episode thing, basically two cores or two seasons of anime. And I watched it on Hulu because Hulu had all the weird shit and being so fascinated by how utterly alien Kodewa Zombie Desuka was. Because, you know, in high school, instead of watching anime, I watched a lot of like American TV stuff like Lost in 24 and Breaking Bad. And I watched X-Files and like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like that was a big part of my media diet in high school. And so watching this like utterly insane show that defied all your preconceived notions about like what a story would be, how you would structure it, 
um being able to have like watch an entire show over the course of a couple of days and get like the full content of its story rather than having it like sort of spooled out to you over the course of hundreds of episodes of anime or like weird 24 episode hour or 24 episode seasons with hour-long episodes which is kind of more of that classic american tv model and just getting this like it felt like someone taking insanity into a syringe and just shooting it into your veins and that was where I think my like horizons exploded with anime and realizing the, one of the primary appealing factors to me is that it can be absolutely anything. It can be any genre. It can stylistically do whatever it wants. It can tackle any premise. If you can think of it, anime can do it. And obviously this is like true of manga as well. Um, and that's where I then, because it was all available on streaming stuff and Crunchyroll was coming in and Hulu was there, Netflix started getting anime at that point. I watched like everything i could get my hands on um and just like everything uh and so i watched a shit ton of anime over the course of college and that's what led me into eventually taking japanese language classes because i was so fascinated both by like the actual product and like what it reflected about the culture and the language and stuff of japan um and so i one of the things that was fun about watching anime was trying to sort of figure out what are characters saying like what are these common phrases and terms and expressions that you hear and can you how do you associate it with the subtitles to be able to kind of deduce what is happening linguistically since you know i was also taking english literature i've always been interested in language and so then once that started happening that meant that even if i watched a really shitty trash anime it still was interesting from like a, a language perspective because i could still like sort of get something from it so i just watched everything i could get my hands on uh, studied Japanese, became, you know, again, like functionally fluent in Japanese, and I have been watching anime like a fiend ever since. Um, and that, that is that is basically my big overview. Is like, for me, it started with English dubs and Toonami, and then eventually evolved into mostly TV anime. Like, I have watched a fair amount of movie stuff, but I feel like, Jonathan, you're definitely more in the, like, uh, Japanese movie realm. Um, whereas for me, it's like I've watched, if there is a TV anime that aired between 2010 and 2020, there's a very good chance that I watched it. Like a very, very high chance that I watched it. Um, there, and then like a good chunk of stuff pre that, obviously. Yeah. I mean, there is an episode of the weekly stuff podcast called Sean's anime podcast because yes. it's when it was our best of the decade stuff. And we did uh, an episode that was the best anime of the decade that wasn't even supposed to. It was supposed to be a segment of another episode. And Sean uh -huh. filibustered for so long. He monologued for so long. We cut it out and made it its own episode. It's episode 312 from January 2020. Uh, you will hear Sean talk about 50 plus different anime from the 2010s. It's a good primer yep. on anime from the 2010s. And and you kind of went up through college stuff. I didn't quite go that far when I was talking. Because um, I also got just very into Japanese cinema. Uh, especially once I entered the film program at the University of Colorado. Uh, my degree, my undergrad was in film studies. My I technically, my uh, master's degree is in art history. I only ever took one art history class. It's because the film studies master was piped through the art department. So... Anyway, that's what they gave me a degree in. Film is an art. I have film history yeah. knowledge, so there you go. Film degree, or, or sorry, like like college degree names and like titles are always like weird bullshit yeah. that rarely reflects 
what you actually did, I feel like. I am I am technically a qualified art historian. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, no, so I got very into, you know, lots of live action Japanese cinema. I, I have a working expertise of Japanese cinema history. I did my comprehensive exams in that, so I've seen a lot, a lot of Japanese cinema. I've had a similar fascination with Japanese language as Sean has. Sean is better with languages, and so he's uh, much more fluent than me, but yeah. But yeah, so so I think that's like the general overview of the history with anime. Again, it, it has just always interested me that that even though we came up from the same period, that you went in that kind of like the Ghibli manga side, I went in with the the Toonami side, and now we have come out on the other end, both weird anime nerds, but in slightly different and, ways. And I don't know what it is that because I've you it, this is kind of I'd forgotten this about you, Sean, that you were much more of a dub person for a long time until you mm -hmm. kind of made that shift. And I I wasn't like militantly opposed to dubs. I watched them for like Full Metal Alchemist has a phenomenal dub and I you know I did listen to that. Also I watched Full Metal Alchemist with my little brother who more wanted to see stuff in English. Um, I saw Dragon Ball Z in English and Japanese growing up and sometimes you couldn't if it was on TV it was only in English, right? So yeah. it it aired on the uncut version of season one, the like Vegeta saga, aired on Adult Swim back in the day, and I remember taping all of that because I'd never seen it and I couldn't afford the DVDs, and so that's how I saw that stuff for the first time, and it was only in English, obviously. Um, but I never I I never liked it more. I always liked the Japanese more when I would get it, and I remember it was specifically. I think the thing that turned me to I didn't really like dubs ever was my interest in Studio Ghibli because there are some Ghibli movies that have very good dubs, but Disney's work dubbing Ghibli was often very annoying and it wasn't it wasn't because they were like unfaithful, but it was the focus on doing all this celebrity casting that would often kind of tie those dubs down and it would make me want the Japanese versions. Um, and, and that's something that just like sparked a lot in me that I always kind of was was more on the sub side of things than dubs there was never a point in my life where i was like all in on watching stuff in english yeah because for me i think i for a long time just sort of categorized like like live action japanese stuff which i also always watched as a kid because i you know i grew up like watching godzilla and stuff um and and obviously that was only available english dubs for a long time but as soon as it was possible for me to watch godzilla movies with japanese language options that was what i always defaulted to like i never had a particular like desire to watch the specifically english dub versions of the godzilla movies and obviously once you move into like most japanese live action movies don't have english dubs because it's not nearly as common or ubiquitous thing for the majority of foreign film but for anime it's like that's just what i grew up with because I didn't own that many different anime DVDs. Like I watched, I got some stuff on DVD, but it was mostly stuff that I had already grown up with watching the dubs on Toonami. Um, and so in my head, it was always just kind of like they were sorted in slightly different categories where if it, you would said a live action thing, I'd be like, I couldn't possibly fathom wanting to watch a dub of a live action thing other than if it was like the only option or there was like a accessibility reason why it had to be done. Um, whereas for anime, I was more like, no, the anime is something you can just kind of put on the background. If it's Japanese, you're not going to understand it um, and that kind of stuff. And then eventually I do think it was just like breaking myself of the nostalgic association with it um, was big. Because like for Dragon Ball, what I needed to do to be able to watch the Dragon Ball Japanese language stuff 
because the English dub was so ingrained because it, you know, I can't remember a time in my life where I hadn't been watching Dragon Ball, right? So it's like Dragon Ball being an English language thing was just so assumed to me in terms of the audio that I had to start with Dragon Ball from the beginning of Dragon Ball. I couldn't start watching a Z thing because I couldn't, jumping into like the middle of the story like that with the characters having completely different voices and sounding so different and the approach being so different was really hard for me. Um, and, and so I'm sympathetic because I know this is like a thing that a lot of English Dragon Ball fans have in difficulty getting into the Japanese one that's like so different and you have such a strong association with it. But but starting with, okay, Goku's a little kid. Let's pare it down. Let's go to the actual, the beginning of the story. Then it was like, yeah, okay, no. It's, it's so much better in kind of every conceivable way. Not just the acting, but also like obviously the music and everything else um, is a million times better. But breaking that association was something that I had to do like with intention because it was so strongly built up from my childhood. And that's the thing I've never had. I, the only anime I would say I have any nostalgic connection to the dub for is okay well i have nostalgia for like the pokemon dub and the Yu-Gi-Oh sure. dub but it's it's not a it's more of a like nostalgia that i kind of laugh at it's not a i think this is good full metal alchemist i have some nostalgia for the dub because i watched it so much and i do still think those dubs are very good i think the japanese is better but those are i think the best dubs funimation's ever made for anything um although their one piece dub is very good i will say um but yeah, I, I'm more like dubs are something for me that I enjoy kind of switching over to on the DVD out of mm -hmm. like an academic interest in like how did they approach this? And sometimes it's very interesting. But yeah, I, I don't generally have that kind of nostalgic connection, which makes total sense, obviously, that, that you do and lots of people do. Just wasn't something I, some just in the weird path I took, it wasn't something I had. Yep. So there you go. There we go. So I think that covers the history section. So the next section of this episode of the podcast I want to do, Jonathan, is I've written a couple of questions, which I shared with you a little bit before the podcast, that gets into kind of like the the philosophical side of things. And I think um, one of the things I wanted to do with this episode of the podcast was really break down sort of into pieces the the interest in, in sort of appeal of us to anime that leads us to the point of like, why make an anime only podcast? Like out of all the subtopics that we have covered over the course of weekly stuff and in our personal interests, like why is this anime like the kind of like the way we've gone? Um, and I know that this like ties deeply into a lot of the stuff you do with your, your thesis and your PhD and all of that. It's stuff we've talked about in like, bits and pieces around the edges when it has been relevant in different topics on other podcasts we've done. But I thought it'd be interesting to just sort of like tackle this head on as a main discussion in and of itself. So these questions are, are generally built to kind of like build a little bit on top of each other. And the first one is really broad, but I think it's very fundamental and it kind of takes the anime specific part of it out of the equation and just looking at animation. So what are the like general artistic elements and features that distinguish animation, make it different, make it special in a certain perspective from um, live action? I want to give you the first crack at this question, Jonathan. Books have been written about this. Uh, this is yes. a big, big topic. I'm, you know, to some degree, my book I'm working on is about this in some ways. Because the thing is, I, there, like there's an active academic debate over whether animation is cinema, not necessarily in a like, is it good enough to be cinema way? There's, it's more of an ontological. Sometimes it is a, like there's a long history in Western academia of dismissing animation as lesser or alien or different. 
Um, and now I would say there is a genuine ontological debate over like, what do you call it? There are scholars I really respect and enjoy their work who refer to animation versus film. And what they mean by that is like animation is one thing and then film is live action photography. And I don't like that definition. I've never liked that definition. To me, film is broadly moving image media, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that includes animation, that includes live action, that includes stop motion, that includes lots of different things you can do with a camera, also cameraless animation to some degree, like things you can do with film and with, with imaging. I would say video games is where the line becomes something different because there's an interactive component and there's a, there isn't a camera, there's a sort of live rendering and all of this kind of stuff that I think distinguishes that. I've been everybody kind of has a different model for how they conceive of animation versus live action and like what they call cinema. And some people have their model as animation is just a separate thing. Some of them have it included, but in a weird way, there is a whole kind of turn in uh, film theory that has happened in the nineties and two thousands, especially once digital becomes big of, there are some theorists who go in a more radical direction and say animation is actually the supreme thing because all film is animation. All film is mm -hmm. an illusion of still images strung together at a speed sufficient to create the illusion of motion. And so animation is the original thing. And I, there is actually good historical data for this too. People were creating what we would now see as animations before you were able to create photographed film in that sense. Um, and so there is that, there are, there are scholars who take uh, Lev Manovich is one of them. Alan Cholodenko is another one who go on this kind of extreme path of saying all cinema is kind of a subset of animation and animation is the purest thing. Uh, I don't really subscribe to that either. I've been thinking, I think the way I'm going to introduce this in the introduction to my dissertation, um, because everyone, like I said, has their different models. I really think of cinema as like a solar system and there is like the sun at the center of it that is some imagined ideal of film that we will never touch and we will always debate about and we will never actually be able to access because it burns hot and is impossible to get to, right? The classic, the, the platonic approach. Right. there. Yes, the platonic thing. That's, that's like what Bazan does with film, the myth of total cinema. Um, and then around that sun orbit all these different things. And there's a planet that is like classical Hollywood cinema. There's a planet that is avant-garde filmmaking. There is a planet that is animation but maybe there's a planet that's western animation which we'll talk about later is much more of a genre and there's a planet that is anime which is much more of can be anything at once right um mm -hmm. and i just think of like and then there's you know your moons and your asteroids and all sorts of things and they're all kind of orbiting this ideal but they're different because of their orbital position i think that's the best kind of this is a very theoretical approach when it comes to getting into the actual nitty-gritty that it matters to people what distinguishes anima animation from live action i really do think at its best it is the sort of freedom of animation and mm. in the west that is often taken to mean fantasy now there's plenty of fantasy in anime as well obviously um and like doing impossible things and i think that is a wonderful possibility of animation and it's been you know a great thing throughout the history of animation from the early days of you know disney and fleischer studios to now with you know anime being much more predominant um but i think as anime has taught us uh anime specifically i think teaches me this that freedom also means that you can depict reality in really specific ways that I think you cannot capture on photography. You can get to sort of inner psychology and I think impressions of the world, things that you can't point a camera at a sunset and get a picture of your subjective feeling of seeing that sunset. 
but you can paint it in a way that somehow reflects your subjectivity and memory. And that's something really, really important. I use this example of um, the movie Poem Poco, which is a Isao Takahata movie. It's the one about the, the tanuki, the raccoon dogs. Mm -hmm. And that one had its, its backgrounds done by Kazuo Oga, who is a very famous background artist who did a lot of work with Studio Ghibli with both Miyazaki and Takahata. And Takahata specifically wanted Oga because Oga had lived in the Tama Hills, where that is set, at the time period the film is set in, and just knew what it felt like to be there. And he could give a hundred different animators books of photographs and history and all of this stuff, but it wouldn't be the same as having master artist Kazuo Oga just draw on his memory and make it like that. And so I think there is a sort of identification you can have with animation of a sort of inner realism, an emotive realism, a psychological realism, which has a different term, so I don't like to use that term, but some kind of emotive realism to animation. And I think that can fuel animation that is very fantastical and also very down-to-earth and slice-of-life, which is, of course one of the biggest kinds of anime out there is just people mm -hmm. going to school and doing shit, right? But there's a real benefit to animation in that, too. And I think the general control a director has over it. One example I, I've used in lectures before is in the movie Spirited Away. Spirited Away, has Miyazaki's movie, has a lot of obvious things in it that could only be done in animation because it's very yeah. fantastical. But it also, like, Chihiro is just a little girl. There's nothing fantastical about her. But she, it is such a more interesting characterization than I think you could ever get from an actual flesh and blood child in front of a camera because it is this combination of Miyazaki as the, the main designer and writer and storyboarder and then all of the different key animators doing work and then the, you know, the vocal performance and everything that gets tied together. There's a completeness to that characterization. And one moment I use is there's this scene where she comes back down to Kamaji's den in the boiler room to get her shoes and clothes to run out and go meet Haku I think and she puts on her shoes and she does this little tap where she puts the shoe on and then she taps it twice on the ground she does it with her left two taps it twice on the ground to like make sure her foot is all the way in it and I look at that and I'm like you would never direct an actual child to do that it's too finicky a detail to go like Miyazaki had seen kids do this with their shoes and so put in the effort to do all of the key animation and in-betweens that would go into this. But it it like tells you a lot about her character. Just this little thing she does to put her shoes on. And those kind of details are things that I think actually, ironically because it's not real, get captured from reality more because of the degree of consideration that has to go in. So those are some of my opening salvo thoughts. Yeah, and, and that, that covers a lot of like my feelings as well and, and and specifically i think the thing about animation that is so compelling um is is that it is this kind of it's impressionistic or expressionistic however you whichever angle you want to take those terms at but it is a an artistic representation of what the artists are trying to depict for the audience rather than and it, it's something that everything has to be created right and i think that is like to me the most powerful thing about it it's something of like i was because when i was writing up these questions one of the things that occurred to me um was that there is a similarity between animation and video games in that way that is like a, sometimes i have a similar response to both video games and animation where there's like a miraculous quality to the fact that this thing exists like there's a element of it of where i'm like i don't understand how you how this got made like all the different people and all the different crafts that have to come together for the thing to exist in any 
form at all is like kind of beyond the scope of what I can really comprehend compared to live action, where it's like, if I wanted to, I've got an iPhone camera, I've got basic editing software. Like I can go shoot a live action movie. Like I can take my camera and I can go somewhere and I can get film and I can edit it together. And it's like, you know, obviously it takes a huge amount of skill and artistry and talent to make good stuff out of live action. But there is a sort of fundamental floor at which live action goes. Like it can't go below that. Um, there's like, you just have the real world that you can capture. You have actual photons that you can put into film or record digitally that is a representation of the thing that you took a picture of. Animation doesn't have that. Everything has to be made from scratch. You have to create everything. Nothing is just given to you. So everything, if everything has to be created, that means that everything has to be created with specific intention. And that's the thing that separates particularly like masterful animation to me exists at a level of like interest and appeal that I don't know if live action conceptually can even reach because it is this pure refined artistic representation of the world through the lens of the people creating it um, by hand, right? Having to, with thought and with intention, create every detail of those characters, every action that they make, every line that they say, every scene that they look at, every world that they exist in, every place that they go to, um, every thought that they feel and every like feeling and emotion that they express and, and feel internally, all that has to be created with specific intention by the people creating the animation. And so that makes a thing to me that is like inherently appealing and kind of universal, that it cuts through um, like a lot of the, the noise that live action can often has because it is what it is. It is what you're recording with that camera. You can't remove i mean you can remove things using digital effects but you have to go in and intentionally try to remove noise as much as possible if you're shooting something with a film camera whereas like you are creating every single element from a blank canvas if you're doing it with animation and that to me is just like an incredible artistic achievement that again boggles my mind like even very kind of bad amateurish looking anime productions still to me like are very impressive and it still gives me like a feeling of like secondhand accomplishment or something just to see that this episode actually got created and got out there you know like eventually we'll i'm certain we'll eventually cover uh the macross franchise as a future topic and there is an episode of super dimension fortress macross i don't remember which episode it is but it's an absolute disaster it is the worst episode i've ever seen in terms of like animation quality and it's tragic because it's a really critical episode of that show it is like there's so much really important plot stuff that happens but it's one that it's just like, they just didn't have the time. It's totally unfinished. Um, and even watching that, and almost because it is in this like like skeletal form that you're getting it in, it's you look at it you're like, God, it's a miracle. Like, because all of this was someone had to sit down and create all of this. Someone had to draw this. Someone had to think up all of this stuff. Someone had to, you know, come up with in their mind's eye how to draw and represent this background so that it would be something recognizable to a person. Because you didn't just go to go to a forest and take a picture or something like that, you know? Um, and so that kind of stuff and that, that sort of ultimate artistic expression of animation within the world of film and moving images and that kind of stuff um, is what to me is like the most appealing element about it. I think you're so, so right on all of that. And, you know, one word that kept coming up that I would want to draw our attention to is the hand. I think uh -huh. the handcrafted nature of anime in particular, because most 
American animation and a lot of just Western animation writ large. Uh, and even in some other Eastern countries, you know, China doesn't actually do a lot of hand, they do a lot of CGI too, has kind of diverged into CGI, which I, I'm not saying has no like hand or artistry to it. There's a lot. But if you watch anime still, you see the hand in everything. You know, mm-hmm. it is still, even though anime has moved to a digital workflow, it's a digital workflow where the primary input is still a human hand drawing things, right? It's not ones and zeros. And I think that is just something we as human beings respond to. It's the thing that, you know, you were talking about sort of the wonder that you get looking at animation. Uh, Tom Gunning, who is a scholar, film, very famous film scholar, has a piece called Animating the Instant that I use a lot because I think it's a really beautiful description of how animation has preserved the wonder of early cinema where we've all heard the stories about like the Lumiere brothers who invent the first film camera and they show their movies and it's like they have the tr- the, the train entering the station, right? Mm-hmm. And all the people in the theater go, oh God, you know, and they run away because the train is coming out. That might be apocryphal, but the, the story has persisted because there's this, you know, you look at early films from like the 1890s. They're very short little loops, but they would be, very wondrous to people even though they're very mundane it's a train it's people leaving a factory it's a little skit of a boy and a man playing with a hose it's all these kinds of things right um but they would be very wondrous just to see this motion artificially reflecting the real world Uh, but eventually that becomes mundane especially now at the point where your iphone has like you know a higher resolution than you know a a state-of-the-art digital camera even 10 years ago right yeah. Um, it's very mundane to just get and we look at videos all the time from amateurs you know that's that's what is TikTok TikTok is you're scrolling through uh, an infinite library of people shooting film right Yeah. Um, and animation never is able to get to the point where it feels mundane because no, there isn't a TikTok of animation where you flow through and like oh man everyone's just five minutes out of their day is creating animation that's not possible it's just not possible And so when you watch animation, you are on some level, this is Gunning's argument, aware of the instantaneous nature of every frame is bespoke to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And so it restores some of that wonder of artificial motion is there in animation. And I would extend to that, I think the handcraft component of that is just a, a huge, beautiful thing about it because there is so much individual expression that comes out of a hand moving uh you know i love one side of anime i just adore is obviously there's there's manga is the basis of a lot of it but then all the like stuff building to the final image you see on screen like the storyboards and mm-hmm. then the key animation and the character designs and the layouts and i have a lot of these books i have next to me here i have my shelf of studio ghibli art books and then i've got some of the storyboard books where you can look through the original storyboards um i've got my ones for gundam kukuru's doan's island which we talked about on the last weekly suit gundam i just got some of these i just got in from japan the genga book for uh the last evangelion movie uh genga is the japanese word that basically we we call key animation um and just all these layouts from the film and key animation moments and i love seeing that because i love the closeness to the original hand of the artist and it's it's a kind of expression that comes out in all of this you know even in stuff that there's no reason that it needs to be animated on like an intrinsic level like we mentioned kaguya sama love is war earlier 
you can tell a story about two kids in high school with live action. That's easy, right? They've but done why, it. There's, there is there's a live a, action version of yes, Kaguya-sama. There is. Know? But why is it a manga and then why is it an anime? Because to actually do what they're trying to go for there, the kind of like lived internal reality of these kind of nerdy, frankly kind of loser high school students uh-huh. who are you know, horribly anxious about confessing their love to each other and see the world in these exaggerated terms. How do you do that? And then how do you realize the comedy of it? Well, the actual answer is you can only do that in animation. You can only do that through the kind of subjectivity that animation gives you. I have not seen those Kaguya-sama live-action movies. I assume they pale in comparison to the manga and anime. Yeah, or they have to be fundamentally different things. Because as you say, like... uh you can do certain amounts of, you know, expressing subjectivity in live action, but it's like, it's so much work has to be done to do it in live action relative to animation. Like you have to do so much to try to convey that. Um, And one thing along those lines that I think about sometimes that is kind of like a philosophically mind bending thing to think about. If you want to like, you know, get high and talk to your friends about anime is um, the passage of time in anime is completely artificial and is determined by whatever the like, however they dis- they choose to represent it, which is not true of live action. Live action has like a fundamental limit by which it can manipulate the perception of the passage of time based on how you're shooting it and like the camera and the frame rate and what you're doing with that. Obviously, live action can manipulate how you perceive the passage of time, but with anime, the passage of time is completely constructed. There, there is like no time is passing within the world of the animation happening. Um, you're just seeing a representation of what's happening in that world as presented to you through the the artistry of the animators and in in every the background artists and everybody else involved in creating the final image. But that's one of those things of where I think sometimes you look at live action directors. And I was thinking about this um with like with like Man of Steel um with Zack Snyder who who obviously takes a lot visually from anime in a lot of places. And how much work Zack Snyder has to do as a director to try to do some of like the slow down, speed up, ramp up, all that kind of stuff to get the fluid, um, constantly changing nature of time that anime has. And he like, you know, in Man of Steel specifically, he basically, you know, pays homage to or rips off depending on how far you want to take the accusation. Um, But he, he takes from an anime called Birdie the Mighty. Um, like some of the action sequences are basically just those action sequences from Brady the Mighty, but how much he has to do as a director to try to make the time of it make any sense. Whereas with like anime, it's just all nonsense. There is no time. It can, it can be happening at whatever speed you want it to be. Things can happen as many times as you want it to be, as any angles, in any way you want to represent it, um, because none of it is real and all of it is manufactured. Um, and it's one of those things where time is so flexible in anime and you never think about it because you never have to think about it. Um, but it is a it is one of those things of artifice that anime can play with that if you're a live action director, you have to do a lot of work thinking up a setup and thinking up a language to communicate it to the audience because it's going to be very alien if you're trying to treat time as flexibly in live action as animation does as a like matter of fact of its very existence. It's very true. And, you know, we're in Man of Steel is an interesting example here because we're in a moment, very interestingly, that animation and live action are converging in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. And this is this is part of like Lev Manovich's argument with uh, digital cinema is that 
digital cinema kind of reveals live action as a subset of animation because suddenly in a digital era so much of cinema becomes animated uh and and that's you know been very true obviously in the 2000s with the proliferation of cgi but you know i think a lot of so for instance we have talked a lot on the weekly stuff podcast about how bad the marvel cinematic universe movies have looked over the last couple of years and mm-hmm. there's a lot of practical reasons for that of just they horribly underpay and overwork their VFX artists. They don't necessarily hire directors who have a background with special effects. Their pipeline just isn't very good. But part of that is I think there's just a general lack of understanding of how to do the kind of compositing work that is the actual fundamental essence of, of like anime animation, which mm-hmm. is images layered, a background and a character layer and a special effects layer and all sorts of things, right? All animation, hand-drawn animation is all compositing. And it has been since the beginning. It's the animation stand is the original, you know, thing where you would build a table and you would put your background and your cell layer and then you would paint, point a big 35 millimeter camera down from the ceiling. You know, Walt Disney invented the multiplane camera, which was a variant of this where you would separate them on panes of glass. And then, you know, now you do it all in the computer, but it's all compositing and you have to be good at that or else there's no animation. Um, and I think Hollywood has struggled mightily with figuring out how to make compositing look good with all these mixed media layers of, of, you know, live action photography and CGI and video screens and whatever else they're using. Yeah, it's, it's very, very true. I think the last thing I want to hit on with this question before we move on to the next one, um, is something that, that I think we both hinted at a little bit in our like opening spiels, but I do want to pay particular attention to because i think it's a thing that's easy to overlook in animation and it's something that when we've been doing weekly Gundam, we have to remind ourselves often is with characters and acting um that like obviously the voice acting is a big part of it but that those characters are acted by the animators right who create the expressions and the body language that that character inhabits and that's one of those things looking at like what are the elements and features that distinguish animation from live action I think one of the biggest things, and this is true of all animation, um, to the point that it's one of like the main sort of, uh, I forget what it's like, the principles or whatever that Disney animators learn yes. is appeal and it's character appeal, right? It is, it is that like these characters appeal to you because you create these performances out of them and you must create appealing characters. Um, and when you think about an anime, like how much emotion can be expressed by the shift in like the like the position and like shape of a character's eye um and how much clarity there can be to that emotional expression because it's something that has to be refined and created by an artist um and that's one of those things that when i said earlier with like live action comes with all of this noise like there's a lot of noise that and this is not an inherently bad thing it just is what it is there's a lot of noise which is like sort of unnecessary information used to communicate emotional states by an actual real world person acting out a thing in live action or just out in the world because there's so much information being expressed by like the you know micro movements and all the expressions and the way that people hold their body there's so much information that gets put out by the way that you observe a real world person that some of that might be information that you're trying to communicate narratively. Some of it might be kind of noise that is getting in the way of getting the clarity of what you're trying to express. And anime animation fundamentally doesn't have that problem. It only has that problem if the person doing it is bad at doing it. Um, but a skilled animator is able to create 
in in just two frames of animation like a whole emotional state that is expressed in such a like direct potent way to the audience that that is one of those things of like appealing characters and characters that act and express emotion um is one of those things that i think is to me and i suspect to most people is the gateway that gets you into being so interested in animation beyond other lots of other mediums is because of the ways that characters kind of jump out of the screen at you and and even though they aren't real people they feel bigger and more real than an actual person does yeah this is what disney was so good at this is like the i yeah. think the greatest contribution the walt disney studio made in their early days is because the, the the term you you use there the appeal that comes from the book the illusion of life which is by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, and they were uh, two of Disney's nine old men, the like lead animators in the early mm -hmm. days. Um, and that book is sort of an animation bible. If you've never read it, it's very. It, it was basically their attempt realizing that they and a lot of their peers were getting older and weren't going to be around forever to put down all this institutional knowledge they'd gained before they were gone, basically. Um, and the book breaks down 12 principles of animation. That's where also you hear the terms like squash and stretch, the idea of yeah. the kind of movability of characters, anticipation, staging. Uh, and then the final one is appeal, um, which they say would uh, would be like charisma in live action. Um, and, you know, I think you look back at... Because Disney's shorts have a fairly high difference from their live from their their feature length movies. Um, mm -hmm. A little bit of this happens in the Silly Symphonies, but like what, with Snow White they move into this focus on naturalism and a lot of what they would call realism in animation, which is not necessarily they don't, there's lots of fantasy in there, but trying to make the characters feel like there's some kind of, you know, realism to them. And yeah, that, like they move with an actual yes. weight and momentum. Cause if you watch a lot of like really, really early animation, like Betty Boop cartoons and that kind of stuff, like a lot of like sort of like either like with Disney, early Walt Disney animation, or sometimes like or before it, characters typically didn't like maintain clear momentum in their movement and stuff like that and it's a thing you take for granted is how it's like all the secondary motion and things like that that happen with the squash and stretch and all the techniques they developed and that's like what they mean by realism is that like there is a real world weight and momentum to how these things move even if it's a fantastical creature even if it's a dragon the dragon obeys what feels like an accurate representation of the laws of physics to a way that makes it feel real to the audience yeah, and I would say, you know, you look at Disney's, like, quintet, their first five, like, pre-war features, which is Snow White, Pinocchio, Bambi, Fantasia, and Dumbo. There is this real mastery of these techniques that is on... Like, those are masterpieces of animation, not necessarily for the story or anything, just because the animation is so, like, drop-dead. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Um, and I think there's some post-war ones that rise to that level as well, but, like, uh, S Sleeping Beauty is probably the best. Um, but you know, you learn a lot by looking at those and those are often cited by Japanese animators because they're breakthroughs in a lot of ways. Disney had yeah. the money to give the animators the time and space to do this, right? Which not everyone else. I mean, Disney was the only feature game in town. Fleischer and, and Warner Brothers did not make features in animation. So that's part of why those are so different. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th I think that that's a good overview. Obviously, as you said, that is this that question like animation versus live action and what goes into that is a that's a that's its own whole podcast if you want to make it. That's its um, own academic discipline at a certain point. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think that that covers sort of the general like I hope that like you know gives people sort of a, a sense of where our thoughts and perspectives come down on that kind of stuff. So let's move on to the next question, which now this gets into specifically anime. 
what elements distinguish Japanese animation or anime, or as we call it on this podcast, Japanimation. Um, we, the proper term from the 80s. I don't know where we got, why, why are we using anime? We should use our own goddamn English word for it, Japanimation. Um, well, that's no, in Japan, they yeah. call it Japanimation. In Japan, sure. they, anime is all animation, and Japanimation is the word specifically for Japanese-made animation. And in the West, we tend to mean Japanese animation by anime, although it is a fraught term with a lot of possible meanings. Yes. But, like, the Japanimation was also used pretty heavily over here in the 80s. That's true. Which yeah. I always find very funny. And they're, they're, when I looked around online, when I came up with the title Japanimation Station, and I was curious, because I obviously I Googled in English, nobody has this name, right? And nobody did. I was like, I should check in Japanese also, just in case, to see. And, and I saw a bunch of people who were like, apparently it was a thing where people thought that, like, Americans still called anime Japanimation, and they were surprised to learn no, it's not. They, they don't call it Japanimation anymore. It's just like, what? I've just always thought that they <laughs> called it Japanimation. Crazy. Anyways, that's kind it of... It is a great word. Yeah. Yes, it's a great word. I love it. Um, that's why the podcast is named after it. So what elements distinguish Japanimation versus West Western animation? Western animation. You can't get a good portmanteau from that one. I would start with comics. Uh, I would start by talking mm -hmm. about comics and manga. Uh you know, because the the most significant precursor for Japanese animation is manga. There is yeah. other traditions. There is the there is pre war animation in Japan. It's never to the level of like a widespread industry, but there are some studios that do big stuff. Um, ja Japan's first animated features were during the war, and they were the propaganda films. The Momotaro, the Momotaro Sea Eagles, and Momotaro Sacred Sailors are the two first feature animations in Japan. One of those is the one where. Uh, Momotaro bombs Pearl Harbor and Bluto from Popeye is on the ground. Have you ever seen this, Sean? Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. It's fucking amazing. Anyway, so that's one tradition. There's the Toei Doga movement in the late 50s and throughout the 60s of trying to create a feature animation division on par with Disney. But I would say the major anime tradition as we understand it now that essentially starts with Mighty Adam, with Astro Boy, with Osamu Tezuka is manga at its root. And so I think you have to understand the difference between manga and comics. And from a lot of, you know, reading and research I've done, two things are commonly pointed to, which is that manga and American comics actually had a lot in common in the immediate uh, post-war days uh, after mm -hmm. World War II. Um, they, they both had a lot of freedom in what kinds of topics they did. There were a lot of genres. There were a lot of um, intended demographics. And there were some really heady you know, concepts. And there was violence and sex and stuff like that. One major divergence point is that in the U.S. there is a moral panic about this. And we institute the comics code. Yeah. And the comics code really severely limits what comics can deal with. And helps you know, kind of narrow American comics, and again, not all American comics, but in the general kind of big commercial industry to a fairly narrow range of genre, subjects, and demographics. Manga never has that problem. And the other major difference is that manga before World War II actually was often done in color. Early Japanese comics were colored. Uh, but after the war, couldn't afford that, and so they do it on newsprint. And what the thing they discover is that, oh, well, if we draw our comics in black and white, it's way cheaper, we can publish way more of it, and we don't have length restrictions in the same way, because newsprint is cheap as shit, so we can write as much manga as we want, and we can have weeklies and all this kind of stuff. And so I think you combine the comics code in the U.S. with the focus on color comics in the U.S., which creates certain distribution models and length requirements and all this stuff, versus in Japan, you have 
manga being in black and white makes it much cheaper and more easy to disseminate and then you don't have the moral panics um that is one divergence that you see before anime is ever a thing it's just that manga is not a one like if you think of comic book in the u.s you immediately think of superheroes there are mm -hmm. way more than that i know in comics but like that association exists for a reason and if you think of manga it can be anything it can be anything under the sun uh and then i think that extends to animation where i don't think animation in the west was always necessarily tied to a genre and audience again you look at early animation from the like early disney era where you also have fleischer and warner brothers and it's broadly family friendly but it's sometimes weirdly risque and it's experimental you know popeye and the fleischer stuff does a lot of like off the wall shit um mm -hmm. in the early days you know it's literally out of the inkwell the hand of the animator would be in there and eventually that does kind of whittle down in the post-war years to some tv animation that was very cheap like the flintstones and stuff like that the jetsons the hanna-barbera stuff and then the movies would follow the disney model and eventually that solidifies and solidifies and homogenizes where i think you can fairly call animation in the u.s in hollywood a genre which is you have an expectation of what you will see if you go see an american animated movie in theaters it will be a pretty narrow range of subjects of length of intended audience the kinds of humor it's a genre you cannot say that about anime because anime develops with plenty of commercial restrictions and interests, but a much looser sense, especially once, you know, you get into stuff like the revolution of, of Space Battleship Yamato and then Mobile Suit Gundam and then the stuff in the 80s that really shows that the audience is much broader than was initially thought. And anime does not have that limited demographic or subject matter. And I think that is that becomes the most obvious difference between the two is I think anime is a medium and animation in the West is a genre. Yeah, I think I, I, I fundamentally agree with that, that. And I like where you identify that part of that divergence point absolutely is American comic books versus manga because manga in Japan still is and has been for the entirety of the manga industry, which starts post-war. Um, everything like it is like what the golden age of comics was generally like in America um, where I think people like just generally don't understand how popular and like broadly popular comic books were in like the 30s and 40s in America like action comics number one which is where Superman was from was sold millions of copies um, like they they and, and they were like super cheap right so it's that like it used to be a like fundamental pulp form of entertainment be so-called pulp because i mean it comes from that the paper that it was made on which was super cheap pulpy paper um so you also have you had your pulp paperback novels which is like early detective stuff um zorro all that kind of stuff um but then you also have your early early dc style like action comics detective comics where you get superman and batman but there were a huge range of genres represented like there were horror comics were super popular romance comics were super popular right this is like where archie comes from you then also have stuff like popeye originally obviously is a funny strip comic um so there was a really wide range of, of genres available and so it's like the golden age is called the golden age for a reason it is the time in american history where comic books were the most popular they have ever been by far like it's not even close and comic books have become less popular and more restricted over time since then restricted by like in general in terms of mainstream what kinds of genres are represented 
Um, and that particularly narrows, as you identify, after the comics code, you get into the Silver Age, which is when Marvel joins in with, with uh, Fantastic Four number one, Timely Comics becomes Marvel, um, and you get the huge superhero boom of the Silver Age driven by Marvel Comics and their huge success, which now we are seeing like, you know, that's kind of what the MCU has replicated in certain ways in movie theaters and almost to like kind of arguably similar consequences in movie theaters in terms of how it has like kind of shrunk the scope of what is broadly available within the medium in some ways um, in terms of, you know, again, what is more popularly accessible and what is popularly talked about because there have always been non-superhero comic books in America. Some of them have reached certain levels of popularity. Um, you obviously have like very sort of famous examples like mouse from the nineties and some like underground in indie comics and stuff like that. But yes, the comic books, especially now have really receded into a very very narrow market in america um whereas in japan manga is still pulp entertainment it is super cheap it is available anywhere you want to get it um and you can you can get your tonko bone which is your collected volumes which are incredibly cheap it's something like you know it's like a tenth of the cost of a similar kind of trade paperback volume you would buy for an american comic book I was really struck by this, Sean. I'm looking up Action Comics number one. It sold in 1938 for 10 cents. And if you adjust yes. that to modern inflation, that's only $2 still. That's mm. pretty close to what Weekly Shonen Jump goes for now. Weekly Shonen Jump is three or 400 yen, but I remember the exchange rate when I was there. It would be like $3 for an issue of Jump. And, you know, if you have not held an issue of Jump, it's like 400 pages of, of newsprint and it's a ton, and you can buy it anywhere, and Tonkobon are the, you know, nicer collected volumes. Those are only, I mean, gosh, I've got a recent volume of One Piece right here, 440 yen, which is yeah. less than $4. I mean, you cannot, you cannot buy an American trade paperback for less than $20 in, at a Barnes & Yeah, Noble, like, right? if you're getting it for less than 20 it's either, like, old or it's on sale. Yeah, like, because right. you're looking at, like, $20 plus generally um and it obviously like you're getting this very nice volume on like glossy paper and it's very nice print quality if you're getting an american one and it's going to be in color and everything but the cost of that is that it's it's expensive as fuck like i bunch bought a bunch of the scott snyder batman graphic novels when the batman movie the batman came out um because i had read some of the early scott snyder stuff i hadn't read all of it i was like oh i want to go back and read some of those and i was like god this is so expensive. And I had to put them on like wish lists and wait for it to get on sale to justify it to me. Whereas like I buy digital manga all the time from Japan because it's so fucking cheap. Um, and so that just creates this much more thriving marketplace that gets the thing that like I said, like one of the things that appeals to me about anime, which again is true of manga as well. In many ways, anime and manga are like so synonymous in my head as like industries because there's so much crossover. Um, it's kind of a ubiquitous crossover. Um, but like it's it's so cheap that you get that sort of anything is possible. You know, it's so cheap to make that's like, do you have a dumb idea that you can conceptualize as becoming a manga? Well, then you can do it. Like you maybe people won't be interested and won't buy it, but you can make whatever the fuck you want and you can sell it because it's so cheap. And either it might not be picked up by a publisher, but there's such a rich doujinshi or fan-made market that exists in Japan that like is also an entry point for a lot of manga creators. Like it's just such a broad thriving industry because it is has such a low barrier of entry both on the creator side and on the consumer side. And so that, I think, as you say, Jonathan, that's very much where we get this kind of um, ground that this really fertile, massive ground that anime has to sort of spring up from that gets to adapt that and has a 
such a willing audience to consume whatever kind of product that might come out there, whether it's like meant to be super broad mass appeal, like a loop in the third, or it's meant to be much more sort of like narrow in focus and hit like your sort of like literal, like otaku people like a Cordoba zombie dust car. Is this a zombie? That's obviously not designed to be viewed by a million people, but it can get enough of an audience to justify its own existence and be the weird little thing it is and fit within that larger space. Whereas Western animation, like, I love lots and lots of Western animation. This is not to say that, like, Western animation is bad, but it's so limited, and it's infuriating how limited it is. Um, because whether it's, like, TV animation, which still has more options, or cinematic animation, which has almost no options, it's like, you just, you know what you're going to get, and it's going to be some form of light comedy. And that's like, and that's it. Like, that's about as, as far as it's going to go is light comedy. And then if it's a movie, it's going to have like a Bambi's mom dies moment in it. And you can kind of go in <laughs> knowing that's exactly what you're going to get. And is it how, you know, which studio made it is going to tell you how many like kind of grading pop culture references are going to be strewed throughout the film. Um, and, and that's one of those things of where I just have cut back almost entirely on watching modern western animation because i feel like whenever i go out of my way to watch it i know exactly what i've watched before i've sat down to watch it and you know it's funny whenever i will say this about western animation someone will prove my point by saying well what about like spider-man into the spider-verse that was unique and great and i'm like it was absolutely name another and then mm -hmm. you know they'll do it for tv and like well what about like gendy tartakovsky and samurai jack that's like i'm like that's great who's the other gendy tartakovsky <laughs> You know, and then it'll be like, well, I liked Avatar The Last Airbender. I'm like, great. What else is in the lineage of Avatar The Last Airbender out there that you feel has like followed up on that? Not from the same people, you know, like yeah. if you can only name outliers, then it's a problem. Whereas like if you wanted to like, if I were to ask you, Sean, like what are anime that aren't like Princess Mononoke? You would never <laughs> stop talking, right? Like there's a billion. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this, it's a very good point because it's like, yeah, because like some of the only and like Western animation I watch is like I will, I will watch Gindy Tartakovsky stuff. And obviously I watch like Dave Filoni, like the Star Wars, the Clone Wars, which is 3D, but it's animation. Um, but yeah, it's like it's all like because also a lot of that all comes out of like a very narrow band of like gargoyles and some of that stuff from like the 90s and early 2000s um, that was a little bit richer and, and had a little bit more adult material and that's one of the things that to me is like the other big distinguishing thing and i think for when i was a kid before i tried to identify like why i was so drawn to tsunami and and like why even if i you know i love dexter's lab and courage the cowardly dog and spongebob squarepants i mean there was a huge revolution of like really interesting tv animation from when we were kids in the west because of cartoon network and then nickelodeon having to compete with cartoon network like cartoon network funded so many amazing creators like gindy tartakovsky to make really cool cartoons but they were still within a very narrow kind of genre of comedy that they were able to be of like episodic comedy and what appealed to me about Toonami was it's drama. Even if it's funny, like they're dramatic stories that have a beginning, middle, and end, right? right. Like Dragon Ball is not a thing that was designed to exist in perpetuity, in perpetuity forever into the future, like unending. Like obviously we have our like weird sequel shows and stuff like that, but there is always a sense when you're watching or reading Dragon Ball that you know this story is going somewhere 
and eventually it's going to stop and have a definitive dramatic conclusion because it is a dramatic story. It's not an episodic comedy. Episodic comedies can be great, but when the only thing you have that's on offer is a lot of episodic comedies where, you know, there's no continuity, there's no changes in character, there's no changes in plot or theme or structure. Um, Like when that's the only thing you have, it's not going to, for me, like it's not going to attract me as a like, lifelong fan kind of thing of where I'm going to continue to be obsessed about Dexter's lab for 20 years. Like that's never going to happen because it's like, what is there to be that obsessed about with Dexter's lab? It's a great show. Super funny. I love it. I would watch an episode of Dexter's lab right now and have a good time. I still sometimes think of the omelet du fromage joke from that yep. show. Everyone like does. piece of French I know. Um, but, but like I still watch Dragon Ball constantly. I think about Dragon Ball constantly. It's true of a lot of those Toonami shows because I love them in the way I would love Hamlet or I love Moby Dick or I love Seven Samurai or any random drama like Mad Max Fury Road, whatever. Like pick, you know, the wide range of different kind of dramatic stories you get in any other medium. Anime exists in that continuity most of the time. There are episodic comedies in anime. You know, you've got your Sazai Sans and stuff like that. Most of it doesn't come out over here. But, but like... That exists in that much broader continuity continuum that has all these different kinds of drama shows. And one of the few things that like you get now in Western animation where you occasionally get those dramas, like in Avatar The Last Airbender, is like entirely that's what when people say that Avatar is like an anime, that's just what they're talking about. They're talking about, oh, it's a story with a beginning, middle, and end where characters grow and change and develop over the course of the story. And then it reaches a final point that has like a thematic idea that is communicating to the audience as opposed to being an episodic comedy. It's like, yeah, that's great. Like, I, you know, I like Avatar The Last Airbender a lot. But the thing that's so great about anime is that that's not the one show that came out when you were a kid that did that. There's a million shows that do that that come out all the time every season in, in Japan. I'm going to say something that's going to piss some people off. Avatar The Last Airbender is basically the animation equivalent of Donnie Darko or Pulp Fiction to film school students of sure, the film yeah. bros who come in. And that's the one real movie they've ever seen, right? They like they liked their Jim Carrey comedies and, you know, whatever else. And then they saw Donnie Darko or Pulp Fiction and saw a movie with actual cinematic ambition and were wowed by it. And then four years later, after a full film school education, they realize, oh, that's not the only time someone did that. There's a ton of movies. Now Pulp Fiction doesn't look like the most singular thing ever made, right? Mm -hmm. I think Avatar The Last Airbender has a similar feeling of that, where, like, I'm sure it's a great show, but, like, most of what people say is so unique about it is only unique if you're only talking about American animation. Yes, 100%. And, And honestly, it's one of the things that I think also why some anime that came out over here when we were younger and stuff like stuff like cowboy bebop and full metal alchemist is one of these and eva like they have like these really oversized reputations over here like relative to the rest of the anime market um that i think comes from in part this thing of like well you know cowboy bebop and all those three are super popular very beloved in japan but like, they're not necessarily shoe-ins to be in the top 10 of greatest anime ever made in Japan because those weren't the only anime that they watched, right? Like, they came out with 100-plus other anime that aired the same year they came out as opposed to this, like, the five things that came in, out in America. Um, yeah, you, you get a lot of that kind of stuff. Anime also ends sometimes, right? Like, yeah. 
if Full Metal Alchemist were an American show, there would be more Full Metal Alchemist airing every fucking day. Like, it's yeah. kind of funny. Like, Full Metal Alchemist is an, is an absolutely enormous apocalypse hit in Japan, too. But it also, yes. like, they do their show, they do their second show, and then that's just it. There were the live-action movies. But, like, in terms of anime, there is not an, in, like, we have to redo this thing every couple of years, right? There is not a Marvel Cinematic Universe. There are some properties that go on forever, like One Piece. Although One Piece is an ongoing story that the creator is still like One Piece will stop. Yeah, Yeah. like One Piece will end. Yeah, yeah, because there are some like seemingly eternal ones, which is your Doraemon and and, And and Detective Conan and stuff like that. Um, But yes, but those are you know rarer because it's hard to make a hit that can do that for that long. Um, Whereas structurally in terms of format that is like what western animation is most of the time designed to fit into and some of that has to do with like the way that like syndication works like there's a lot of like other structural reasons why that was sent like incentivized by broadcast studios um but you get a lot of your episodic comedies and i hope i hope you like your episodic comedies because that's what you're going to get a lot of yeah or now in the cg age i sean you don't you don't have any nieces or nephews, so I don't think you spend a lot of time with small kids having to watch what they watch. But uh, kids' TV has gotten mostly very bad. I know there's like people love Bluey, I'm sh- and I'm sure that's great. I've never seen it. But most like that airs on like Disney or Cartoon Network now is like the cheapest CGI garbage shit you've ever seen that like looks like an animatic from the 90s because like it's just like the kind of that that moment we grew up in where like. There was a relative ambition among things like Courage the Cowardly Dog and Ed and Eddie and Dexter's Lab and all of that. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't, it's gone. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, again, like there was just like a lot of money went into that because Cartoon Network was like, hey, let's do it. Um, and you yeah. had like a whole generation of animators like Brad Bird and stuff like that that were coming up that like could hit that kind of material really well. Right. Um, but I think that I think that hits that question. We got a little bit off topic there, but that's okay. Let's move on to the third one here because I think this is this is interesting. This hits for me a little bit like the Japanese language side of it because I think this is important to think about. Obviously, as like two American people making an anime podcast, is what what is it about anime that is appealing to us from this like multicultural perspective as Americans viewing? Japanese media what about that side of it is interesting you know this is interesting I read a book uh recently and I'm gonna forget the name of the author off the top of my head but it was called Japan America and it was this is like mid-2000s it's a yeah it's a good title like Japanimation Japan America and it was about you know the the obvious moment that we're in that has only since that book came out gotten bigger of the kind of American obsession with Japanese culture and media and all of that kind of stuff right and one of the points he makes in there that I thought was smart, it's Roland Keltz is the name of the author now, K-E-L-T-S. Anyway, um, and one of the points I thought he made that was smart was that Japan, you know, lots of stuff you watch in anime is fantastical, but lots you watch is just the, the world, right? And what's kind of cool about that is you learn about another way of life. Like, oh, this culture uses, not only uses trains more often, but the trains work and everyone likes them, unlike the New York City subway or something, Right. Um, or, you know, oh, this, what's a manga cafe that they're going to? Like, that's interesting. And you learn about all these other parts of a culture. And if you want to, you can go fly over there and see it, right? There's economic barriers in this kind of thing, right? But 
it's a real place that you can go visit. That's, I think, one just very basic thing, is that Japan is a culture that is different from ours. It's not as alien as it has been made in different phases of pop culture. Uh Um, There's this, like, honestly, of Asian countries, Japan and America are extremely close because of the, you know, post-war relationship that was forged. There's a lot of similarities, actually. But there are differences, and it's cool to just, like, see another culture in art. It's, I think, one of the values of foreign film in general. And the special thing about animation is it's, often a little more accessible than film for various reasons. It's shorter, it's more piecemeal, it's easier to dub, all those kinds of things, right? Um, and so that's the side that is like actual reality. And I've done that. I've, I went to Japan, I spent a month there. I absolutely loved it. I did a lot of stuff that I'd seen in anime and wanted to learn about, you know, and now I notice it more. Um, and I really, it was, a, it was a very, very special experience and I can't wait to go back. Uh, but then when you get into stuff that is more f- fantastical or, or unrelated to that, you know, I can't go to the world of Mobile Suit Gundam. I can't go to the world of Dragon Ball Z. Um, even something like Cowboy Bebop is imagining a multicultural future that is very different, right? Um, it's seeing the world through sometimes unique cultural prisms that teach you a lot about, you know, sometimes just rewires your thinking of like, oh... I hadn't thought of this thing that way. I'll say, you know, for me, one thing that really attracted me to anime in the mid-2000s was it had a very fundamentally different perspective on war. Um, Mm -hmm. Then, especially growing up as a kid post-9-11, America was very rah-rah, we're going to bomb the shit out of some brown people. And, you know, there's a lot of anti-war anime and manga in that period. Anti-war themes have always been a big thing because the manga anime industry largely rises out of a generation that lived through world war ii and knew what they were fucking talking about right yeah um you know it's right there from a lot of osama tezuka's you know post-war work he's thinking about all of this but everyone is um and i think that's something that attracted me it's just you know that's there's there's a political side to it too of just seeing different views on the world i'm actually re-watching full metal alchemist for our next podcast there's more of that in there than i'd remembered there's mm-hmm. some like they 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 latch on to some of the like refugee racial stuff that is in the manga and is in brotherhood it's more outsized in full malagamist 03 for i think various reasons but yeah yes yeah yeah i I observed the same stuff about and we'll talk about that in next week's episode but it also makes a lot of sense when you look at the director of that show and then what that dude made like four years after that point it's like okay yes no this is the guy who made double a gundam um yeah and and yes like obviously i think there's there is a fundamental um, appeal and interest to consuming any kind of foreign media i think just in the sense of it it just exposes you to so much else that you didn't know about or couldn't know about because of like the you know the world that you live in and this is true of anybody right you're you're always you have whatever kind of sphere that you operate in in your life and you are only going to be aware of and knowledgeable about things that exist within that sphere um, and unless you are like rich enough and lucky enough to be able to like travel a lot and do that, like that sphere is not going to get bigger naturally on its own. So it's like consuming media is one of the main ways that you can get that kind of insight into other places and cultures. Um, and yeah, and then anime is just such like a rich industry of interesting media um, that is also particularly nowadays so readily accessible that it's just one of those main vectors that you can get that like regardless of it being specifically Japanese it is just if you are not from Japan you get to see that world and get to sort of think about oh this is like another way that you know schools can be structured like I'm always fascinated by the idea 
that students in general in Japan stay in their classroom and teachers go around to the different classrooms is like, that's a fucking <laughs> nutty idea. But there's also stuff that like to me is I would love is the notion of, and again, you know, I have never taught in a Japanese school or anything. So maybe some of this stuff is, you know, you don't want to take for granted that it's like, this is going to be a universal thing that all Japanese schools do. But, I'm, but obviously some Japanese schools do the thing of where students are assigned like a cleaning duty and it like rotates through and they are responsible for cleaning up the classroom and putting the chairs and like the materials away. And I'm like, man, that's so smart. That is such like, I wish we did that. Like not just from a, like there's a practical consideration with like cleaning the school and janitors and um, like money and that kind of stuff, but also from a classroom management and kind of behavioral management perspective think there's like such a benefit to that that when there's a cultural expectation around it oh man like i wish i wish i could do that and obviously you can't be the one teacher that does it in your school that's not going to fly um but some of that stuff is fascinating you know from like a, a occupational point of view as being a high school teacher um it is nice that high school anime is like the dominant overall setting so yes. i get a lot of exposure <laughs> to that stuff you get a lot of exposure to different foods and things like that and get to see that kind of like the food culture I think one that I always find really interesting because it's so different um, is religion as themes and like ideas yes. and symbols. Um, you know, I love the really goofy ways in which Christian and like Judeo-Christian religious stuff is used in anime often. You know, Neon Genesis Evangelion is probably like the most famous and silliest example, and particularly silly because some people take it so seriously. And you look at it like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta realize that from the creator perspective, Christianity is an exotic religion. It is like a, it is a heavily minority religion in Japan. They are exposed to it because it is a mind, you know, it exists in Japan. It's not, there aren't no Christians there. And obviously, like in foreign media that Japanese people consume, they'll be exposed to it. Um, but it's, but like their approach to using Christian imagery is for a million reasons fundamentally different than how an American director would approach using that kind of imagery. And that's one of those things where, particularly being American and how kind of like dominant Christian imagery and like themes and ideas are having that stuff be treated as like uh, in the same way that we might use a ninja in a TV show or a movie over here is like, Oh, it's cool. And it's weird. And it's like, it's Japanese. That's the way that that kind of stuff will often pop up in Japan with like nuns and priests. Like eventually, Oh man, when we get to fucking all the fate stay night stuff, Oh, there's some good <laughs> shit along this line there yes. where like get weird churches and priests and nuns and like the Catholic church kind of stuff is so great and weird. That's a um, huge thing in JRPGs. I think people, yes. because a lot of it would be edited in American releases of games like final fantasy and dragon quest in their initial releases, how much like Catholicism and faith is like, or not faith, but like religion is in there that they would have to like eh, scrub out of the American release. Cause yeah. it would be considered a, Offensive. I am waiting for one day when we get the anime that is like, you know, we have the Marvel movies Thor that is taken from the like ancient Norse god. I want Japan to make an anime called Jesus that is that. It's it's a superhero show about Jesus treating him the same way we treat fucking Thor. It would be the funniest thing in the world. Yeah. The that would be fantastic. But then on a more on a more serious note, though, that you do have the like actual like religion and spirituality in Japan, yes. you know, which is your like Shintoism and Buddhism and like the sort of syncretic relationship that Japan has with religion because it has two like coexisting dominant religions that like most people in Japan sort of like culturally and stuff move between those two different modes 
fluidly and it's fine in a way that like over here you can't I mean you could but people would think it would be very weird if you were like both Christian and you were Jewish and you were both those things <laughs> at the same time and sometimes you do the Christian kind of ceremony stuff and sometimes you do the Jewish kind of ceremony stuff it's we see those as being like separate spheres that can't really cross over like there's no Venn diagram there Whereas, like, in Japan, Shintoism and Buddhism have coexisted for so long and it's so embedded in the general culture that it's, like, it's not weird to sometimes go to a Buddhist temple for some sorts of services, to sometimes go to a Shinto priest for some sort of, and Shinto temple for some kinds of things or shrine. Um, and that kind of stuff can just coexist naturally within your culture. Um, and you get exposure to lots of that kind of stuff. And it just comes with a different perspective on spirituality that I think is yeah. often fairly ubiquitous. Um, it's something that eventually, when we get deeper into Kimetsu no Yaiba in the anime adaptation, becomes a much bigger element of that series uh, later in the manga that I'm excited to get to, where ideas of like reincarnation and like karma and those kinds of things are treated like very seriously and respectfully and naturally because it's just like a part of the general culture of what spirituality is. Whereas over here, that kind of stuff is exotic and Judeo-Christian ideas are the sort of natural assumed themes that you would incorporate if there's going to be a religious or spiritual element in your product. This is this is huge for me in anime, but also Japanese cinema writ large. I mean, it was a, a lot of my instruction to more Eastern religions, which I, I will say I vibe with so much more than mm -hmm, Judeo-Christian. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, I know to some degree what I'm talking about. My dad was a Lutheran pastor. I grew up with this. Um did my first communion all that stuff um and just as an adult like i don't really consider myself a part of any one religion but if you're asking me like what actually like resonates with me in terms of more like belief systems culture that kind of stuff it is more of the buddhist shintoist kind of the some of the japanese flavors of of these religions um and some of this is just you know i've seen that in the in these works i've studied it more my master's thesis that i mentioned earlier about isao takahata's films is shot through with a bunch of research on Japanese spirituality and trying to bring that to bear. And I'm very proud of that side of it. I think it's it's interesting. It's a lot about, because the movies I'm studying are so much about death, it's a lot about like certain mm -hmm. ways Japanese people treat and view death. There's one book I just wanted to mention here that I absolutely love that was invaluable to me called Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye. It's by a woman named uh, Mary Mutsuki Makat who is uh, half Japanese, half American. Um, and it was basically about her, I think her mother was Japanese and died and went back to Japan to bury her and kind of took a tour of the country um, just trying to learn about spirituality and views on death. And it's a very good like primer with a lot of Japanese voices in it talking to her. And I remember this one scene in the book where um, she was talking to a group of, of Japanese strangers about like the notions of gods and God and like the, and they were talking about like how weird they find the like Western view of one God. They're like, that would scare me. I like, I like thinking there's a ton of the gods, right? No. And none of yeah. them are supreme, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that's absolutely one that speaks through a lot of this. And there's, you know, there's plenty of anime that have nothing to do with that at all, but I think you do realize how much that touches all sorts of things like man dragon ball was eye-opening right in terms of like uh -huh. its treatment of gods which its treatment of gods does not align strictly with any world faith but it's much more clearly taking from the kind of as you say syncretic views of just a japanese person would have growing up in that culture is what would create the dragon ball view of gods 
Yeah, I mean, there is a there is a good reason why the English language dub does not translate Kami's name as God, even yes. though <laughs> that is what. And you know, they have to come up with some different jokes in the English dub because there are lots of jokes in particularly early Dragon Ball when Kami is introduced. That's like Kami-sama is just means god like that's just what that word is like it's not even his name he doesn't have a name like that's just his title is kami-sama right but they have to they can't because it would be too as an issue of translation it would be too confusing to say this is god because the um, yeah. an american viewer really english any english-speaking viewer would have the association of the dude with the beard right and yes, like exactly the single god up on his cloud and it's not that is not the image dragon ball is playing with at all yeah so a lot of that stuff ends up getting sanitized uh in in a lot of that early stuff that we watched one other thing here that i think about particularly in that moment and when i was like 19 or 20 you know like early like graduating high school early college when i was getting into like that wider world of anime that one thing that i always find interesting and, and particularly again at that point like i found really fascinating was like the way that like sexuality is explored in anime is so different um and it's one of those things where it's you know it can be a double-edged sword because there can be stuff that i look at i'm like i don't know if this like subject matter was treated uh, like well or not but there's just a frankness with which sexuality is approached in in anime and more broadly in japanese culture you know like there's like casual nudity in dragon ball and this is where like america is the weird outlier because that's also true of like lots of european media right. and stuff like that as well um but like in America, particularly like when you're younger, I feel like the only ways that sex and sexuality and like in specifically like sexual feelings, like characters feeling sexual about a thing, um, they're being horny or whatever, like is a thing that only exists um, in like dark ways. Like it's like always like sexuality is like such like a dark, violent, uncomfortable subject that when it pops up in a lot of American media, I feel like it's so often... And this is particularly true if it's a aimed at a male demographic. It so often has this like sort of violent, uncomfortable edge to it. With like I think like the clearest modern pop culture example of that being Game of Thrones, wherein sexuality is always this sort of like either debaucherous like you know thing of someone's just like you know a sex fiend or whatever, and and you know they're they're coded that way as just being sort of lecherous. Or it's rape and it's sexual violence and that's or it's incest, you know, and it's like it or it's all three. Just, There's a lot of yeah. like those things mixed together. <laughs> yeah, and and like sex has to exist in that realm. Whereas like you watch your high school anime rom coms and it's like normal to joke about people's bodies and to joke about sexual feelings and for like you know to have stories about like adolescent boys dealing with sexual feelings about like the people in their lives and being like oh you know this girl has big boobs and cleavage and you're going to explore that as a part of like that character's subjective experience of their life and not just ignore that that's a thing that everybody goes through is feeling sexual things um and it can and it's light and funny most of the time and that was the thing that to me i think appealed so much was like oh this can just be like humorous and fun and light and universal and it's a thing that everybody goes through and it doesn't have to be like dark and weird and predatory um and again it's a thing where you know you this anime is a broad medium i'm not saying that all anime deals with this stuff great 
but like you can get so much stuff that to me like gives you a lens to explore those ideas and think about those ideas in a like comfortable healthy way as opposed to a like i must repress this if i do not repress this then i will be an evil incestuous lecherous raper man um and that is the only life i could lead right like which is where the the sort of uh, american media particularly get aimed at a male demographic i feel like is very hard in that direction yes it very much is i you know i remember the culture shock of seeing goku and gohan's little boy dick in <laughs> dragon ball and dragon ball z yeah. because you just there's no equivalent there's no equivalent in like a show for like that age like you just couldn't do it you literally couldn't do it on there's it's so funny the different edits that would have to be done for american yeah. tv of like goku suddenly has a leaf here it's like the austin powers thing right of yes. just putting different objects in front of them the one other thing I want to say here, Sean, is uh, language in general. And you talked about this a little uh -huh. bit of just hearing another language. That to me is one of the main appeals of all foreign cinema. Um, and I I watch more foreign cinema and TV than I do English at this point, um, pretty substantially. And mm -hmm. I love hearing other languages. And I, the older I get, the more I love this. Um, Japanese is you know, my favorite to listen to and hear and because I, I have the best working understanding of it also, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, I love watching, um, you know, Chinese movies and hearing Cantonese or Mandarin and, you know, trying to see if I can distinguish some of the differences between the two or something, right? And I just love the way people talk and the performances that come out of that and really any world language. I, I love and I also I always love when like, you know, Martin Scorsese's World Film Foundation will unearth uh, a good print of a movie from a country that hasn't made many movies. So I'll watch it and be like, I've never heard a movie in this language. And that's fascinating, and I love hearing that. And that was, I know, a very early appeal for me. I've always, I think, had that a little bit, and hearing, like, a movie in Japanese when I was young was just like, you know, because it affects performance, and it affects so mm -hmm. many different things, the language you are speaking, and I just find languages to be a very beautiful thing. I, I love it. Yeah, I think in particular one of the things that's fun with Japanese is that the, and I think it's, it's what appealed to me about Japanese in terms of learning it, is that it's fundamentally different from English, right? It has no common roots whatsoever with English. Right. Um, the only things it has is you have a lot of modern loan words that come over from English, um, but th that's not grammatically and structurally the language doesn't share anything in common because there was no exposure whatsoever in its fundamental like development uh, phase in history. And so that is, I think, a riveting thing when you're studying it is like you're reassessing like fundamental linguistic concepts of grammar because they're approached in fundamentally different ways. But one of those things is it does have like all these knock-on consequences in how a story is told and scenes play out. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about like the way that information and the order in which information is presented in Japanese is more commonly the reverse of how it's presented in English, whereas in English, you typically put all the important information of a sentence right near the front. Typically, your subject and predicate are at the beginning of a sentence, unless you have a parenthetical phrase that like, you know, like a yesterday, blah, 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 blah. And then here's my subject predicate. But that's going to be near the beginning, whereas Japanese typically puts all that stuff at the end. And so um, particularly like the verb is the last thing that comes in a Japanese sentence if it's a typical structure. And so that means that when there are big moments where like a, something, some dramatic piece of information has been delivered, there's always like a game that has to be played by the localization team of, well, the way that this reveal was written 
with the way that language works in Japanese is that the big reveal of that here's where the dramatic beat hits is on the word killed. Like say it's like, oh, like she was killed. It's like, oh my God, killed. That's the thing. Whereas like um, in English, that sentence would probably be actually structured as like, oh, he killed her. And the dramatic beat will end on the word her because that's the last word in the sentence. And so there's a lot of stuff like that where you get to see these games of like how the language is used dramatically um, that is changes based on how localization is going to approach it um, because, you know, there's no perfect way to do any of that stuff. So, yeah, that's like one of the big appeals to watching anime is just getting to see and think about how does this language and the cultural stuff around it affect the way that the story is told, affects the way that like characters are presented. Things like honorifics contain often huge amounts of relevant character information that is very difficult to translate. Um, there's so much is left to implication in Japanese that um, oftentimes translators end up mistranslating things because it's like hard to tell unless if you're only looking at the words on a sheet of paper and you're not getting the full scene in context, you would not be able to translate the scene appropriately because all of it is being is referencing context as being delivered visually because of how sparse the language is typically used. Um, and so that's one of those big fun things about watching anime um, is kind of piecing that stuff apart and figuring out how is this language being used. And then also how is the translator dealing with this is also oftentimes a fun layer to put on top of that once you get enough of the language experience to start thinking about those questions. I will always have an eternal love and respect for uh, the sub the, the main subtitle guy at Funimation when I was growing up, Steve Simmons, who always mm -hmm. subtitled Dragon Ball and Full Metal Alchemist in One Piece. I think he still does a lot of their subtitles. Um, but he came from a fan subbing background. He was one of the initial VHS fan subbers. And so he has just a lot of fan sub quirks in his subtitles. So when I would watch Dragon Ball in Japanese, he never, he never altered the honorifics. He just left them on there. It would be, you know, uh, Bulma would always call him Son-kun, and he would just write in the subtitles, Son-kun. You know, and mm -hmm. Vegeta would call himself Vegeta-sama and all these things. And I would just learn through context what honorifics were, how they were used, that, oh, Sama must mean great lord, king, something like that, right? And San must be some basic form of respect. And I wouldn't learn it in the one-to-one, San means mister, which is an okay way of explaining it, but isn't really, because we actually don't say uh -huh. mister the way they say San in Japanese. Um, and I wish more subtitles did stuff like this, because it's just, you actually learn through the, there's a bit a little bit of language immersion that you can kind of throw in the subtitles there yeah. that's cool, and like actually lended me that's one of the ways I came to love Dragon Ball in Japanese is there was this whole extra layer of information that just doesn't exist. You know, there's no there's no equivalent of Bulma having this affectionate name for Goku where she always calls him Sonkun is something that just can never be communicated in. And maybe it could, but there's no attempt to really replicate that, right? Yeah, and it's hard just because, like, yeah, we don't have the same culture of, like, the ways that you address people being very, like, sort of specific um, yeah, because Dragon Ball is full of that. And that was also that was an eye opening thing for me when I got deeper into watching Japanese Dragon Ball, because at that point I had already started studying Japanese was getting to like Piccolo calls Goku son. And that's just it. Um, and that's that's one of those of like, oh, that's so cool. he's the only person who calls Goku that and it reflects their very like weird particular relationship. Um, yeah, there's like a lot of that kind of information in Japanese uh, in, in anime that luckily like we for the podcast for the sake of like listeners if you don't know much about Japanese like that's one of the things that we try to work in 
Um, it's going to be one of the things that's fun about Full Metal Alchemist is that, like, I <laughs> didn't know any of the weird <laughs> dub terms. So, like, I learned a lot of new vocabulary of, like, what do they call Jintai Rensei in English? I, I still don't know what Rentanjutsu is because that's not in 2003 Full Metal Alchemist. And whoever's listening to this, if you don't know Japanese, you probably don't know what the fuck I'm even saying. Um, but it's <laughs> one of the fun things about watching anime is, is I, getting that I, weird language stuff. Off the top of my head, I think they called it Alkahestry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that 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 probably checks out yeah anyway uh this is this is more for the full metal alchemist episodes sean do you want to do the next question yes i feel like we we kind of talked around this question a little bit but i think there's some other things to say about it so this is what are some popular misconceptions about anime that is made uh by the american and western fan base and then i added on to this question and we kind of already talked about it in a way it, is avatar the last airbender in anime was is an addendum to that because i feel like that is one of those things to talk about with this uh, it, question it's not no it's not <laughs> there's it's, yeah i have this is kind of funny i have a pretty simple definition of anime which i just mean animation from japan yes and i think that look there are a lot of gotcha ways to redo it and i've had to like i've had to write about this in my dissertation to do my due diligence because are there complications to that yes one of the things people will point out is that a lot of animation in Japan is itself outsourced. Some of the work, it'll originate in Japan, and then in-between work will be done in Korea or the Philippines. Toei has a whole branch. If you watch One Piece, you'll see the Toei Philippines credits every week, right? Because they have a bunch of work in the Philippines. Uh, and people say, well, doesn't that complicate? I'm like, okay, sure. But in a realistic sense, you know what I mean, right? Like, yeah, it's because it's, you know, Batman the Animated Series was predominantly animated by Japanese animators, but nobody's calling Batman the Animated Series an anime because everyone yeah. knows that it was directed in like the the top level creative work was all done by right. the american studio um and, and then it was outsourced a lot of like the the nitty-gritty animation work was outsourced to largely japanese studios for that show the simpsons for 30 years is animated by klasky kuspo in south korea nobody yeah. says if I say The Simpsons is an American cartoon, no one goes, but actually, it's predominantly animated in South Korea, so wouldn't you say it has a greater relationship to the works of Bong Joon-ho? Like, no one does that, right? Yeah. And it's like, some of these are interesting academic considerations, but I think in terms of a workable, real-world, everyday definition, it just means animation from Japan. And there are a million what-ifs and outliers on that, and I understand that. Because there is also sort of an anime attitude that can come across in different ways. I think you're right about... I, like, I don't think Avatar looks like an anime. I think when people say no, that, it it's because the characters are drawn to look roughly Asian. I think that's kind of a racist way of defining what anime is. So there you go. But yeah, it does not really look like anime. It's just its story has inspirations from it. I don't think that makes it an anime. Um, and there's a lot of these, you know, because there, there are a lot and there is a growing number of American productions that are specifically inspired by anime. But, you know, is is Ruby by Rooster Teeth an anime? No, you don't no. just get to decide you're an anime. It, it, the word has to fucking mean something. But they have made an anime based on Ruby. Yes, they have. And them. that show is an anime because it is made in Japan. But Ruby, the CG one, isn't. Because, yes, I'm with you, Jonathan. Like, for me, it's very simple. What is anime? It is animation made in Japan. That is not a quality statement. That is not no, saying it's that, not. like, well, yeah. any anime is automatically better than any Western cartoon? No. Like, in saying that Avatar The Last Airbender isn't an anime is not saying that Avatar The Last Airbender is bad. 
Avatar The Last Airbender is great. I loved Avatar The Last Airbender. I watched it when it originally aired on Nickelodeon. Like, I'm a fan of Avatar. I like that show. Um, it's not an anime, and that's not a judgment of quality. That's just, like, it's fucking not. It's, you know what else it's not? It's not a movie. It's an animated TV show. But that doesn't mean that it's bad because it's not a movie. It's just not a movie. Like, it's just, it's just a definitional thing. There's a lot of things it isn't. It isn't a Jane Austen novel either, right? Sure. Like, and that's and it's okay. Not everything has to be a Jane Austen novel. But if you looked at me and you said, "Hey, Batman the Animated Series is my favorite Jane Austen novel," I'd go, "What are you talking about?" And I'm sure you would have your weird essay length thing of like, "Well, Batman is really a lot like Mr. Darcy if you think about it." Blah 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 blah. And I'd go, "Okay, this is a weird comparison though. It's just an animated TV series." Right? Yeah. And whatever, like, weird logical leaps you want to do, it all frustrates me. It's too clever by half. It's like, you know, what do in normal... Like, words mean things. We have a system of communication. Anime means something different in English than it does in Japanese. That is true. Generally, if, if I said to a Japanese person, anime, they would also think of world animations. Yeah, but, they would think of Disney and that yes. stuff would count. Yes. Right. But we don't use that term. We use anime to mean animation from Japan, and we generally know what that means. And if you say to me, Ruby is my favorite anime, I would say it's not an anime, and it can be your favorite show. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not your favorite yeah. anime because it's not anime. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it is, it's just that thing of... of yeah, I, I just don't like it because to me it like plays into this idea that is a general thing I don't love about of the way that anime is often talked about in America. Um, particularly online is is like this narrow thing that it's like oh it's like shonen battle stuff is what anime is um and i feel like people use that word as like oh this is like anime this is anime-esque it is an anime because it replicates the toonami adult swim stuff that we grew up with um and i think that's like the thing that people think about and talk about but that's like such a very narrow slice of what anime actually is that's based entirely on this like weird filtered thing um from our kids from our childhoods of what came out over here um and if once you remove that filter it's your it's so much more enriching like yes. once you're like oh i don't have to have that filter that filter is the consequence of the ways that we had access to media before the internet was widely spread and streaming was a thing that that filter is gone it is in the trash and we set the trash on fire it's never coming back like, we don't need that filter. We can get access to whatever we want, um, either through official streaming services or through other means. If it's not available through official streaming services, you can fucking watch whatever you want. Um, and so that's, for me, when I think about some of like, the misconceptions about anime over here, it, a lot of it has to do with that, of people thinking, like, oh, uh, like, like that um, Full Metal Alchemist is the greatest anime ever made and everybody would agree and if you went to japan everyone would be like yes of course automatically there we, we wouldn't even be a question it's either that or it's dragon ball or it's naruto or it's one piece and those are the only anime that were made <laughs> because those are the really popular anime and then cowboy bebop and eva right like that kind of thing um it, it irks me because now that i've learned a lot more japanese and i watch a lot of japanese content it's like i realize how much that stuff is still super popular but like if you watch a thing where people are discussing what's like the greatest anime ever made, and particularly if it's like a big popular stuff for like everybody, it's Doraemon, it's Kranshinchan, it's fucking Lupin the Third, it's like Detective Conan, 
Like, that's the stuff that's going to come up. It's going to be Sazai-san, which is basically, you know, the, the elevator pitch for it. This isn't a great elevator pitch, but it's the easiest reference point is it's like Japanese Simpsons. It's like family, like sitcom, basically. It went basically. forever, and it had yeah. a, a verif- it had a clear comedy voice behind it and all of that, yeah. Yeah, and like anybody, any random Japanese person you picked off the street could do impressions of about five characters from that show. In the same way, any random American can do your like fucking bad Homer Simpson impression, right? Like anybody can it's do that. Doe, but sure, yeah. Doe, Doe. He he goes. He has a little bit of a. He leans into it. That's true. Um, but yeah, like, and so that's the kind of some of the kind of stuff of, I think, you know, when you are so fixated on your very particular weird filtered American relationship to anime, it blocks you off from this much larger, richer history. This is true of video games as well, that like once you start realizing, oh, there's like a whole way bigger history of Japanese video games that exist that we only got like a slice of that came out over here. And once you see the rest of the pie that you had this one little slice of, you realize how much like richer your contextual and historical understanding of the things you do love are because it doesn't come from nowhere like once you know about like dr slump how cool dr slump is and all the stuff that dr slump was inspired by like doraemon which is a very clear inspiration there like it it gives you this historical context and lineage that i think enriches your your relationship to that material um it's something that i wish there was a broader understanding of for people around our age range that have that kind of history with anime to kind of move it to another level as an adult. It's the, it's the experience filter we've been talking about, right? Like it was, it was the example I made earlier. If all you had ever seen in terms of movies was Adam Sandler's the water boy and Jim Carrey's Ace Ventura when nature calls, and then you see Pulp Fiction, you will believe you've seen the face of God, right? But if you then go to film school and you are exposed to, you know, the collected works of Orson Welles and Ingmar Bergman and, uh, you know, Akira Kurosawa and name whatever great director you want, then Pulp Fiction will not look so big in the rearview mirror, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same like with my stupid Jane Austen example. If for some reason the only fiction you had ever read were, or heard of or anything were the collected works of Jane Austen, you would suddenly compare everything you then saw from that point to that, which is what yeah. kind of happened with anime, Right. It's a little yeah. arbitrary in a sense that Dragon Ball and Pokemon and some of these were the ones that got big, but then they left this this long legacy, which I think has faded a lot. I think there's generations of anime fans younger than us who just, they totally understand anime on the terms we're presenting it, which is this broad thing where they go to Crunchyroll and it's an absolute world of entertainment, you know? Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the old fogies that are our age that are still on like Twitter and shit that I see you know, the endless cycle of dumb anime arguments that right. happen online that have been happening since we were having them on the playground. Um, and it continues to happen. It's like, it's the same people. It's like, there's this whole bigger world out there and it's, and it's very rich and interesting. And like Gundam was a big, is a big part of that, right? Where Gundam, it has a certain amount of uh, reputation and popularity over here, but it is nowhere near equivalent to the reputation and popularity it has in Japan as one of like the biggest, most successful and most beloved anime animated franchises in the entire country um we've talked about this a lot with gundam versus evangelion of yeah gundam has kind of the popular understanding in japan that evangelion has here because of when eva arrived in the states that's yeah, an oversimplification 100%. but you know yeah 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 and in terms of others of other popular misconceptions one thing we'll definitely at some point we'll do some sort of cowboy bebop episode 
Um, because we should probably eventually, I imagine, we'll do like a signature Watanabe topic because he's got enough good shows and movies that he's done that that would be worth a full topic. Um, and when we, eventually when we do Cowboy Bebop, we might have to do just a whole episode of the podcast on popular misconceptions about Cowboy Bebop because there are so many. <laughs> like with the biggest one being that Shinichiro Watanabe prefers the English dub version over the Japanese uh, dub. Utter bullshit, yeah. It's, it is the most like heinous rumor that is so persistent and never goes away. And I remember it came, it came around again when the bad Netflix live action show happened. And it's just like... Do people not realize that Shinichiro Watanabe was the director of that show and he cast it? Like, he... It's... They didn't just, like, you know, pull some random people he never knew and just, like, oh, we're just gonna have them act the characters and he had no input. Like, he was the director of the fucking show. Like, when, you know, they were casting all the characters, he was sort of there and he was involved in the casting process. And when they were acting, what did the director do? Oh, he fucking directed them. Like... They're the actors he worked with. It would be like trying to say that Steven Spielberg prefers, like, you know, Namikawa Daisuke, who did the the voiceover for the kid in E.T. He's like, I think that's the better, that's the better protagonist of E.T. <laughs> is that kid. That random Japanese kid I've never met and know nothing about. It's definitely him. It's not the kid I actually directed on set for, like, a year and worked with and had an actual relationship with. It's definitely this random kid in a voiceover booth halfway around the world. It's such... Cowboy Bebop, I do hold as a genuine masterpiece. I think yes. it's a phenomenal show. And, and it's a, a great English dub. Like, I don't think... This is not to say the English dub is bad, but... But a lot of the English language... That is one where the English language discourse drives me up a fucking wall. And kind of just makes me want to, like, go watch the show and, like, and be like, remember why I love it, right? Because, yeah. like, the English discourse could be so annoying. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and and one of the reasons I put this question on here is because it is a thing that when we did Weekly Suit Gundam, once we started getting into the 2000s with stuff like Gundam Seed, it became a thing that when I do research on the shows for each episode, it kept on popping up of like, God, there's all these weird rumors and all this bullshit online that once you start getting to the online era of some of these things, it's like there's a lot of really weird misinformation that gets spread around. Well, it's oh, like so. if you just took the fucking playground where we all made up bullshit and then made it the world, that's the internet. Yes, because it's a lot of like my uncle works at Nintendo level of rumors <laughs> yes. that get passed around and they just get repeated ad nauseum. So like the this is like a thing that will continue to come up on this podcast, I'm sure, um, is weird misconceptions about some of these shows and stuff that we'll cover. Yeah. All right, so this next question, I feel like we hit some of these as well. Um, but what genres of anime do you like? And also specifically, what are genres that you feel are generally unique to anime slash manga that don't exist in other media? God, it, just to start on that last part, Sean, yeah. um, this is weird because you would think this would exist more in live action. And it's slice of life. Yeah. It's the just, we're just going to hang out and just, what are the stakes of this show? It's kids in a marching band. Do that's, I haven't seen Sound Euphonium, but my brother loves it and told me all about it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what's it about? It's kids in a marching band. That's all it's about. And it's the kids and their lives. Like, you would think you could create a lot of that in live action for the very cheap. But it's just not a thing anywhere in the world. There's some, you know, lower key shows. But generally, if you're going to get a show financed with cameras, you need to have a little more of a pitch to it. Even if it's just like, it's a part of the world that you haven't seen before or something like that. Um, and weirdly, I think that's like a, that's, that might be the most unique anime genre to some yeah. degree. 
Yeah, that they, that is the thing I was thinking of when I put in that side of it, because when I was typing in what genres of anime do you like, I thought of Slice of Life, and I was like, man, and that just does that's just not anywhere else. Um, and so I put in this that section, uh, second element of the question, because yeah, it, it's I think it's one of those things that speaks to some of the stuff we talked about with like what is the appeal of animation, what can it do, and what's interesting, and that you only see in anime that Western animation doesn't cover is that it is able to do that slice of life thing, which is super mundane. Like it's the reason why it has to have its own genre is because you can't even really reasonably call a proper slice of life show a comedy. Like it will have comedic elements. There will be jokes and you might laugh at them, but they're so light and so not the like main thrust of what the show is doing that it's impossible to actually label it as a comedy. And also they're not like really dramas either. Some dramatic things will happen in a slice of life show, but that's not going to be to the scope or central focus that it would feel appropriate to actually label it as a genre. And it's like a weird middle ground. It's like some sort of like mythic, non-binary anime or something that like you have your two big you know binary poles on the spectrum of drama and comedy and slice of life exists in some magical no man's land in the middle there where it's not really either one of them um and some of my favorite anime when we get to the desert island stuff is slice of life um and it's like such a interesting genre that is truly like kind of a genre about nothing but it's some of like the most interesting anime you can watch made in the last like 20 years is all slice of life stuff. It's like such a big booming popular genre. Um, and, and I, I fucking love it. Yeah. Cause you know, there's, there are, I think the ones that people like associate as very obviously anime specific, aren't strictly anime specific. Like your big shonen battle manga. There's a very unique form of that in manga and anime, you know, Jojo's bizarre <laughs> adventure or dragon ball don't look really like the Marvel cinematic universe. But there is shared DNA. It's superhero yes. stories on a certain level. It's big myth making, right? We have that. It's a certain flavor of it, and I tend to prefer the anime flavor of it. But it's not so different. And mecha, you know, mecha anime, which we, uh, I would say, we are moderately positive on. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I like a couple of them. I like a couple of them. You know, that is not. There is a, again, very specific anime Gundam-inflected flavor of that, but there are plenty of stories about big robots and war machines and all of that in Pulp Fiction, you know, writ large. Um, and, and you know, again, there is the anime inflection of it, but it is not necessarily anime-originated. Yeah, but Slice of Life, there's, like, really... Like, even sitcoms are too comedy to be an actual Slice of Life, which is probably the closest thing I can think of. You know, it's like the thing that people say about Seinfeld is a show about nothing, but like it's it's a comedy. It's just a comedy. Um, if you want to watch an actual show about nothing, watch something like Kaon, which is just purely like a group of like five middle school girls hanging out after school. They're technically in what is called the light music club, and they sometimes kind of play music occasionally a little bit. Um, but it's mostly just here's some girls hanging out after school and there's a couple of jokes that might be a slightly dramatic thing but it's just hey we're sitting around a table and talking is basically the show and it's fucking great um but yeah slice of life awesome very unique genre another one that's like obviously is not actually unique to anime but like there's if you narrow like what specifically you're talking about really only exists in anime is the isekai stuff yes um which we have addressed to a certain extent on Weekly Suit Gundam with Gundam Build Divers and particularly Re-Rise, which are isekai-style shows. But obviously we are we are still in the midst of the, the unending isekai boom um, in anime. 
Uh, I don't know at what point. I, well, we'll hit some version of it with the Tomino topic. Um, eventually, we'll hit some kind of big isekai thing. I'm sure this podcast goes on long enough. Yeah, and, and specifically the video game isekai genre, like uh-huh. a, a genre of modern media that specifically is about people playing or being in the world of video games. Yes. There have been some attempts at engagement with that in Western media, like most of them bad, like Ready Player One, or mm-hmm. like limited attempts to like do a show about esports or something. But they always kind of fail and fizzle out. And it's not, I would say, a sustainable genre, whereas you could make a pretty big media diet just watching shows from Japan either about video game elements invading the real world or real world people invading a video game world or people just going and playing a video game, right? Yeah, I mean, if we... I don't know if this is something we will do or not, um, but, like, we could potentially do a topic that is just let's do video game isekais and that would be a... and just only pick, like, the major ones. And that would be a very healthy, long topic that could sustain, sustain a lot of episodes of the show if we wanted to do it. Um, Weekly yeah, suit is a, isekai. Yes, exactly. We, we <laughs> could, it could be, we could, we'll make its own podcast. That's how many isekai shows there are. Yeah. If you're talking about what anime genres do we enjoy, I have the same answer for this. I have to, whenever anyone asks me about genre in literature or movies or anything, which is that I... I'm very agnostic. I kind of like mm-hmm. a little of everything. I travel, I go around the, the world in terms of genre. There's there's always like the genres that I wish I have, I would like to see more of. I've, I've always, I would love to one day do a deep dive on magical girl animes because I've never seen enough uh-huh. of them. You know, I need to one day do a catch up and watch all of the original Sailor Moon or something, right? Um, yeah. But I generally, I, I will like it, you know, I, I care much less about genre than the content of it. And I, I am willing to like a little bit of anything. Obviously, I have a particular affection for, like, mecha anime because I have done all the Gundam stuff and then I did a whole giant robots class at University of Iowa where I showed a lot of that stuff. So I have a... Definitely mecha speaks to me in some unique way. If you're saying, like, what genre number one speaks to you, it probably has to be mecha just by numbers. (laughs) But I also love... You know, I love the shonen stuff. I obviously... I've got my One Piece wall, my Dragon Ball wall. Got all that stuff. Um... But I like anything. I, I wish I had. T- I wish I uh, have. Uh, would I, I say wish? We'll have the time on this show to watch more slice of life stuff too. You know. Yes. All yes, of it. that is definitely. I I already know where will you know it'll probably <laughs> not be in the too distant future. I've got a couple of topics I know that will hit major yeah. slice of life stuff. Um, yeah. In terms of like the genres, I really like. I mean, it's the easy way for me to say this is you know this will be sort of a, a segue to the desert island thing i mean the five anime i picked for my desert island anime are a mecha show a battle shonen show a uh, slice of life a sort of like wacky comedy and a rom-com slash romantic drama somewhere it's a romance let's just call it that a romance story um because i feel like that probably is the major genres i typically hit a lot of um you know, obviously, I'm like you. Like, I'll watch anything as long as it's good. Like, man, I'll I'll watch a like sappy shojo romance show. Like, I have I have nothing against that. Like, I'll watch a adaptation of an otome game if it is good. Um, I like I don't I haven't watched a lot of magical girl stuff. I have watched some. Like, I've seen good chunks of Sailor Moon. Um, and I did, and I do want to get around to more of that at some point. Like, I want to watch at least like the the original Pretty Cure and some of that kind of stuff. Um, I learned that I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, uh, but I remember I saw a topic going around on Twitter of Magical Girl or Maho Shoujo fans talking about um, how like everyone treats Madoka Magica 
as like Eva of like, oh, it invented this like doing dark shit with magical girls. And everyone's like, no, like magical girl stuff has always been dark as fuck. And then someone shared a clip from an old magical girl show where the main character gets run over by a truck and dies. Um, and I was like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> it was like a like, I got to watch more of this because holy shit, it, this seems great. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. I'll, I'll watch any anime you throw at me. I won't like every single one, but I'll take I'll try it. Well, that's good because I'm going to throw a lot of anime at you on this podcast uh, is, is the plan. Uh, so the, the last question here, I think this is just we just give a one word answer for this question, Jonathan. I th- everyone already knows the answer. Subs versus dubs. Subs. Subs. Yep. It's can I it can I give a slightly longer than one word answer? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. This is. I'm going to try every time I try to say this I get the accusations that you're being elitist so let me say it one more time and I hope I don't get that accusation and maybe Sean can have my back on this it is not that you cannot enjoy dubs or that they inherently inferior or any of that what I will say about this topic is that the reason why you want the original Japanese language version is because that is the thing a dub is an alternate version That does not mean a worse version. That does not mean you are lesser for watching that version. But it is different. I think people often assign qualitative value to the word different. And that's not the way I mean it here. What I mean is it is different because on the most basic level, the thing was written for the Japanese language and conceived around it. And there are a million... Sean gave us examples of it earlier and like the way verbs are spread throughout a sentence. There are a million little ways that affect that you know down to then the voice actors themselves are often you know it's not random who gets cast it's a very mm-hmm. integral part of it you know dragon ball is one we keep talking about akira toriyama handpicked masako nozawa from the audition group and this was re- pretty early in dragon ball serialization and he said many times that he has masako nozawa's voice in mind when he writes goku there's a certain like thing that you lose if you don't have masako nozawa as goku now maybe you gain something else with a different actor but it is different. And so certainly if you are approaching anime or any foreign film, for me, from an academic standpoint, I want it in the original production language because that is one that is the original version that has that artistic intent behind it. But also, and I think this is important to understand, is that when we say dub, you usually mean English dub. Yes. And not everyone on earth is going to enjoy the English dub. But if it's subtitled, which is much easier to do than dubbing, everyone on Earth can enjoy the Japanese version. That is the one version that we can all agree upon and say that's the thing. And wherever you are in the world with whatever subtitling you have, we can all watch it together and talk about it. Um, but, you know, the, the people often act like there's two options. There's the original Japanese version subtitled or there's whatever English dub Funimation made. And I'm like, that's a crazy way to view it. There is this one original version and then there are dozens of dubs if it's a popular show and i don't know why if you're asking me this question you're not asking me about the fucking german dub of dragon ball like you know yeah, there's or like dragon ball is a good example because i know like how hugely popular and respected the latin america like spanish language yeah, dub is that's a great for dragon dub, ball yeah and it's like it's like would you ever ask someone uh, you know in south america to go watch the Funimation English language dub of Dragon Ball Z over either the Japanese or the Spanish language dub because the value of the English one is so tremendous that it supplants their familiarity with their own language or the authenticity of the original one. It's like, no, because that's a ridiculous position. Like, nobody's going around picking one 
of the random foreign dubs in holding that as the best dub of all the other foreign dubs because it's like that's not the purpose of the foreign language dub the purpose of the foreign language dub is to localize it into a like readily consumable format for the people that of the country that it's made for that might not want to or are not able to read the subtitled version of it usually because it's a children's show and so they really wouldn't be able to right and we on Japanimation Station will always talk about the Japanese version, not because we have some deep-seated hatred for dubs and want to kill every dub actor, which I think sometimes I get that impression from people that that's what I think. It's because we're approaching it academically, and that is the one version that I know everyone can go find and have access to. I don't know what primary language all our listeners speak. I don't know their own media viewing habits. I can't tailor the dub experience for everyone because there's a lot of dubs. But there is the one Japanese version that is the original created product. We're going to talk about that because that's the thing everyone can go see and enjoy and agree upon as the thing. Yeah, 100%. And it's a thing of like, you know, also coming from like the literature world, you know, if I was able to read Chinese really well, I would want to read Romance of the Three Kingdoms just in Chinese, but that's not possible. Like I would need to spend a lot of time learning Chinese. So it's like, I need to use the translation, but like, ideally I want to be able to get to as close to the unmodified version of whatever that original text is. And luckily with something that's voiced, being able to do subtitles and having that voice acting is like a really effective way to get close to whatever that like original version um, and like what in my mind is the most authentic version because it's where all of that process was done in line with the rest of the creative endeavor of creating the show. Um, all of this, obviously the script was written in Japanese and the actors were cast by the original people involved in the production, including the primary director. And they were directed by the director that was involved in the rest of the show. And so the rest of it is like, that's the most authentic, the closest version that even if, and I have yet to encounter this, but even if I thought that like in a qualitative way that the English language dubbing and the acting done was even better and that the script was better written through the translation than the Japanese version, even if I thought that, I would still prefer the Japanese version from that authenticity perspective. And certainly on the objectives of the podcast, that would be the only version we would want to cover. Yeah. So... I hope that answers it. I hope that clarifies it. Um, and that's the last we'll say about that. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. The last thing for today's episode, Jonathan, is we have our five desert island anime. Again, this is not our, like, the five greatest anime we've ever watched. It's designed to be a, a representative slice of our anime tastes and interests. So the five anime you would take to desert island. I have questions about this yes. scenario, Sean. This hypothetical okay. this'll I actually have not nailed down my five yet because I have questions about the hypothetical scenario. Okay. okay. I'll say right right up front, I don't really care about the hypothetical scenario, <laughs> but let's get your questions. Okay. Um on the desert island, uh -huh. is anime my only form of entertainment? Do I have access to manga? Do I have access to video games? No. I'm gonna say no. So only anime. Sure. Okay, that helps. That actually helps. Um, do I get the complete run of the anime in question, even if it's not done yet? Is this a magical island where... No. I, oh, no. Okay. No, you get whatever has been made as of the moment we are answering this question. No, you don't get to have, okay. like, magical future <laughs> episodes of some weird anime or whatever. I, I'm assuming that that's One Piece is maybe is, what you're thinking of. Uh, there were a couple. So this is not... I cannot go to the island and it exists out of time and I can see all of Jujutsu Kaisen. 
No. No, okay. Because I mean, because I don't know how you'd answer that question. Because you did, like they could end up putting Jesus Christ in season three on some other studio that drops the ball really hard. Like that's just assuming that some future anime is going to be really good. I don't even know how that would affect your answer. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't go be like, I have no idea if this is going to be good or not. But I'm going to take it as one of my five options anyway. So this desert island is a bold thing to to try to do. Okay, uh, that all helps. I have my five now. Uh, and I and I think it's good. Okay, I, I will say for the purposes of my list, I did not consider anything about the practical <laughs> concerns of the desert island whatsoever. I more looked at it as here's five genres um, that I really liked, and what are my favorite of those five genres that I thought like oh that's a good representative list that are shows that all of these I've watched multiple times and I know I could rewatch infinitely. And I have sort of cheated on one. Not I haven't actually cheated on one. I more just sort of replaced one answer with one that I was like a slightly less common one just to give me something more to talk about other than everyone knows I would just take this. So I've, I've made one a slightly more interesting answer when we get to it. Okay, that sounds good. I was thinking all about this, Sean. I was thinking like, how much time during the day on the desert island do I have to spend like fishing and looking for supplies? And then what anime would I want to watch when I go back to the hatch from Lost at the end of the day, you know, fishing in the in the shallows on the island? That's that's so, really was my thought. Yeah. So I'll say if I was considering that, the number one anime I would bring to the island would be Dr. Stone, which is the science anime where it's all about um, in the future <laughs> civilization has been lost in uh, Senku, the main character, who's a boy genius scientist boy like has to reinvent civilization from scratch using like sticks and stones. And that's what you do. Cause then you learn how to make like cotton candy and shit. And it would be rat. Um, yes. So I didn't consider that because I like Dr. Stone, but it's not in any other context. That would not be like one of the ones I would pick as one of my only anime I could have. Okay. Then I'm good. I have my five. Okay. Do how wanna... do you want to? Yeah. Go ahead. How about we each individually introduce the five and then we have a conversation about them. Okay. Do you want so me to go first? Start with yours. I'll start. All right. First, I just, my favorite anime ever made, I want to bring with me because it's my favorite, and that's Mobile Suit Gundam from 1979. Mm -hmm. Original 43 episodes. I want to be able to watch, you know, Ramba Ral uh, uh, get the, the goof's hands cut off over and over again. Very good. Uh, Dragon Ball, and I'm just, I'm considering this Dragon Ball and Z together. Is that kosher, or do I have to pick I think one? that's fine. Yeah, okay. I, I will accept that. Yeah, because that was effectively one show that they just switched the title halfway but through. But you have to also take GT. I'm you fine with that. You have to have it there. It That's to, fine. And it, sometimes you have to watch it, though. On the desert island, I think I could grow to like GT. I think if, if, that's, if this was the media I had forever, I could appreciate, you know what? It's not a good show, but I do like Pan. I think I could really, I could hang on to that. Yeah, you, you would get to listen to Don Don Kokoro Hikare Teku over and over again. And that would be That would be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That. I'm fine with that. That's hey, that's 64 extra episodes. There you go. Of sometimes okay Dragon Ball. Yeah. Um, that is that is a very chair. I think that should be on the box for Dragon Ball GT, the complete series. It's <laughs> sometimes okay Dragon Ball, says Jonathan yeah. Lack of Japan Animation Station. Um, this is an anime I have not finished, but I have not finished it in part because I love it so much that my heart hurts when I think about I will one day run out of it, and so I don't watch it that fast. And this is Shirokuma Cafe, Polar Bear Cafe. I need to have Polar Bear Cafe in my life. This is probably the show in my lifetime I have laughed hardest at watching. There's something about the wavelength that is on. There's something about the voice work by Hideki Kamiya and Nakamura Yuichi and everyone involved that just it tickles me in my heart 
and I want it all, all 50 episodes. My last two things are not TV series, but they're still anime. The collected works of Studio Ghibli, I just want to bring all those with me onto the island. Sure, I'll accept that, that you can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's only that's only like twenty movies, forty hours. That's that's not a very long anime. If you t- if you did a crazy thing and cut a fan edit of a Ghibli movie into an anime TV show, it wouldn't be that long. Yeah. Anyway, so I want to take all my Ghibli movies. And finally, this is also a movie series. I'm going to take because I don't have video games. I'm going to take Persona Three: The Movies, numbers one through four. Okay. They're so fucking phenomenal. Honestly, narratively, an improvement on the game in a lot of ways. Um, just talking about strictly the narrative presentation. Uh, and we have done podcasts on those. I have fond memories. I would be able to enjoy, you know, some of my favorite characters and their animated, just god tier, phenomenal stuff. So those are those are my five. It's very eclectic and weird. Yeah, and if people have not seen those Persona Three movies, they are really fucking good. Like it's that thing where it's like it's they're kind of a little bit unknown. I feel like over here um, because they're not other than Persona Three, the movie number two, of Midsummer Night's Dream, which for a hilarious period of time was in and of itself the only movie of the four that was available on netflix until eventually they lost it um they were they were a little bit hard to get access to um but yes those movies are fantastic and are the best video game movie adaptations that currently exist Um, people always say that there are no good ones and i say there are four good ones (laughs) exactly i think you're right and so that is why those are the the five anime that i would take to this desert island very cool all right, so my list, the first one I'm going to take, people may be familiar with this one, it's Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we did a three-year-long podcast talking about Gundam. I have watched Mobile Suit Gundam, I think, four times at this point, so it's like, hey, <laughs> I'm sure I can rewatch it a bunch more times and still really like it. Um, so that's my mecha show I brought to the island. Uh, my Shonen Battle show, this is what I kind of cheated with a little bit in a way, where I originally wrote Dragon Ball here, but I was like, well, I'm going to talk about Dragon Ball with Toonami, and Jonathan's going to take Dragon Ball. So I decided I'd pick my second favorite Shonen Battle thing, which is Yu Yu Hakusho. Um, so I'm going to take Yu Yu Hakusho. One of the nice things about Yu Yu Hakusho is that it's like very streamlined. So it's like you don't have to sort of suffer through the Garlic Junior Saga. And it's just, I feel like Yu Yu Hakusho is more easily rewatchable than Dragon Ball because you just get to like go through it. And it's so good, you just want to go through it again from the beginning. I've watched that like three times now. Um, only one I... time in Japanese, but... I have, a couple of years ago, on Apple TV, they were selling the whole run of Yu Yu Hakusho in, like, the new HD Masters for, like, a dollar a season. And so I own the whole show in, like, nice HD on Apple TV. Someday I will watch it. It's not that long. Like, it's 100 episodes, yeah. right? Yeah, that might be a good thing to do for a future episode of Japan Animation Station, just, like, between larger topics. Yeah. yeah. Do some Yu Yu I would Hakusho. do that. I've it's always wanted good. to see it. I, I read some of the manga back in the day. Uh, I don't remember it that well. I've always wanted to see the anime. So it, it has got to win the prize for fastest death of a main character. Yes. You know, like <laughs> Dragon Ball Z, I think it's like five episodes until Goku dies. Jujutsu Kaisen is around there also, um, where Yuji dies before he's brought back. Um, Yusuke dies in like five minutes <laughs> at the beginning yes. of the Yu show. Uh, and I, it's a wild way to start your show. Anyways, I remember so reading the pilot chapter in Monthly Jump and being like, that's how this starts? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Um, so that's my, my Shonen Battle thing I'm going to take is Yu Yu show. My uh, Slice of Life show is Nun Nun Biori. Uh, this is one of the greatest anime ever made. Eventually, we will definitely hit it on a Japan Animation Station episode. Um, it is about a group of uh, girls growing up in the countryside 
um, going to a little school. There's like six of them. They're like the only kids that attend that school. They're all of different ages. So they all like one of them is a first grader and that's the only first grader at the school and it's that kind of thing. And it's just about them growing up in the countryside and, and living next to nature and very light comedy and light drama. But it is like it is for me easily the best slice of life show I've seen. It's fucking phenomenal. Three seasons and a very good movie. Um, that is another my, genre that is unique to anime, I think, to a certain degree, is the pastoral, agricultural, countryside yes. slice of life is a whole thing. Yes, yeah, that's its own subgenre of slice of life, absolutely, is the, like, the going to nature and, and learning, like, the value of nature and just living there, yeah. Um, my comedy uh, is Nichijo, the Kyoto animation comedy um that is just fucking madness it is the best animated show on this list uh it is one of the best animated tv anime i have ever watched i have no idea how kyoto animation managed to like spend so much uh making this re really goofy weird comedy show um as gorgeous and fluidly animated as it is uh, but nichijo is on there we will definitely end up doing a thing on nichijo um, and then my fifth one, this is fun because I don't think I have ever mentioned this on a podcast because it's never come up, but I was trying to think of what is the best romance because I've watched so many because it's just such a ubiquitous genre um, of uh, anime. And the best romance anime I've watched is Maison Ikkoku. Maison Ikkoku is an adaptation of a Rumiko Takahashi manga. Um, people don't know who that is. She is one of the greatest mangaka ever. Uh, she is Urusei Yatsura, Ranma One Half, Inuyasha amongst others but like hey and, and Maison Ikoku which is hugely popular in Japan um you know most manga could get like one maybe two long-running series like a Dr. Slump and Dragon Ball um for Toriyama she's got like five or six and it's like I remember shit. I remember specifically learning that the same person did Ranma one half and Inuyasha and being like how would what how yeah that's right. like because those two alone i mean in the west and then yeah mason ikoku much more popular in japan than here it's like three it's just crazy yeah yeah urusei yatsura would also which is getting a new anime adaptation as well but anyways mizon ikoku is a great show um it's like 80 something episodes i think but it's basically it's a romance about um godai who is a college age student basically he starts off the beginning of the show he has failed to get into college um, so he's what is called a Ronin student in Japan, where he basically has a year off trying before he gets the entrance exams again. Um, he starts living at a little uh, condominium kind of thing called the Maison Ikkoku. And the manager of the Maison Ikkoku is a woman named Kyoko um, that he falls in love with at first sight. She is like recently, she's very young. She's, like, she's the same age as Godai, but she's also recently widowed. Um, and it is a phenomenal rom-com that for me kind of like opened my eyes about the potential of that genre where I have often thought that rom-coms are heavily limited by the sort of core plot mechanic of the misunderstanding, right? That like the way the plots are generally generated in a rom-com is that one of the two parties or both misunderstand, they overhear a conversation, they th read something that they don't understand the reality of like what it actually means. And they think that, oh, my love interest is actually dating this other person or he did this dumb thing or whatever that causes some conflict that feels manufactured. Um, and oftentimes it, it in other rom-coms, it's felt very artificial to me. Maison Ikoku is so well-written that while it, every episode is built around some sort of like coincidental misunderstanding between the two parties, Takahashi always makes sure that that misunderstanding is not about that misunderstanding. It is about fundamental character psychological elements 
that like prevent these two people from being together until they mature and grow up and come to better understand themselves and the world they live in until they're able to be at the point that they could be in a relationship. Um, and it's like a full story beginning and middle and end. It like ends with them, you know, like get finally getting together. And there's a little bit of material after that, which is nice. Um, but it's like s the most sharply written rom-com I have ever seen. That is so much about the like internal lives of these two people and I've never seen something so good at making it feel like that. Even if both people at the beginning of the show, like, got over their bullshit and just, like, confessed their love to each other, they would not have been able to get into a relationship because of all of the sort of fundamental character flaws they have that they have to overcome over the course of the story. Um, and it's also just a phenomenally produced, like, well, really well-directed show. So if people want a good old-school kind of 1980s rom-com anime, Meizun Ikoku is at the top of my list for romance anime and it's one i would take to my island god we would have to think about the logistics of this but i would love to do a series of episodes on shows based on rumiko takahashi manga uh some of those are fairly long but i don't think yeah. it would be impossible like there would be that would be one of them it, it would be pretty fun yes yeah that, that that's definitely like on a list of potential topics that we'd have to think through yeah. but yes because um, ronma one half is so one good. that i've seen individual episodes of and absolutely adored but have never like watch the yeah. whole show in order so yeah it's one of those that's very intimidating because of how big it is but yeah yeah it's you know after doing weekly suit gundam i will say i have a different idea of what means intimidating and i'm like <laughs> that one's only really like 140 episodes that's fine we did 800 episodes yeah. of gundam fuck it <laughs> it's true yeah anyway sean i like your list i think that would be a fun desert island. if we're on the desert island together that's that's great we we, we should have like been uh if we were on the same desert island we should have coordinated our Gundams, and one of us should have picked turn A. Yeah. But... Hey, I'll I'll pick I'll take turn A if you want to take mobile suit. Okay. Know? Good. Yeah. There. Then we can hang out and we can watch Polar Bear Cafe and Non Non Biori. It'll be great. Honestly, that sounds better than my actual life. <laughs> yes. Dude. Oh my God. If we could just yeah take these ten things, go to Desert Island and just like hang out and watch anime and just be like. The rest of the world's going to shit, but hey, we could just have, laugh at Penguin's antics in Polar Bear Cafe. That'd be a good time. That would be, it would be so much less stressful. Yeah. Yep. But instead, we are going to make a lot of episodes of Japan Animation Station talking about these and other shows. Yes, because I mean, basically that's always the point of this podcast, is to get as close to that experience as we can, while also like being functional adults that live in society. Um, but we get to take time off from that to be like, hey, let's watch a lot of Full Metal Alchemist. Indeed. So in the weeks to come, we have next week, we'll be Full Metal Alchemist talking about the O3 show. The week after that, we're going to be doing the movie Conqueror of Shambhala, which is the sequel and ending to that show. Uh, and then we'll have to take a couple weeks to watch Brotherhood. But in the meantime, Dragon Ball Super Superhero comes out in U.S. theaters on August 19th. So we will definitely release our review of that as an episode yep. of Japanimation Station, because that is definitely Japanimation, and we love Dragon Ball. So for at least the next month, this will not always be an every single week series because it takes time to watch the anime and stuff, and, and we want the audience to have time to watch yeah. them along with us. But for this first month or so at least, we're going to be going every week because we want to get it off the ground in style. Yes, so it's, it's going to be a, a good August, yeah, where we'll, we'll, we'll be filling up this August full of good... good it's Anime August! August. Yes, it's Anime August. That's the officially that's the new name of the month. Um, yeah, I'm I am so excited that we're doing this podcast, Jonathan. I'm so excited too. We have literal years of plans already, 
and yes. ideas, and it'll be so fun. And just a Full Metal Alchemist is going to be a great one to start with. I think that's going to be a really interesting series of conversations. Um, our first major series we're going to do is Fate Stay Night and the associated stuff with that that Sean mentioned earlier. Probably Tomino Athon coming in 2023. There's lots of good stuff to come. Yeah, and, there, and the list of topics always gets bigger. I thought of a couple of other ones just two days ago, and, and it's like, oh shit, that, that would also be good. So we've got lots of great topic ideas. Obviously, if people have things they'd be interested in us covering on Japanimation Station, you can hit us up on, on the social medias. Um, we are Indeed. both on Twitter. We're both on Twitter, and you can specifically, there is a, a Twitter account for this podcast. It is at Pod. At Japanimation Pod on Twitter, tweet us whatever you want based on anime. You know, I'll only look at so much random hentai that is sent my way, but there you go. <laughs> but you will look at some of it, is basically what you just implied there. So, well, I can't, if I open it, I don't know what it is, you know. There you go. So yeah, so if people have stuff that we they want us to cover, or questions or anything like that, you can hit us up on social media. Um, but this is exciting because it is the dawn of a new era of of anime podcasts in the world with what i'm sure is going to be the greatest anime podcast ever made which is japanimation station japanimation station